sometimes I pick up a book without knowing what to expect, sometimes without knowing exactly why I chose that particular book off the shelf. There are a lot of vintage pulp paperbacks that I buy more for the cover art than the contents, though I do skim the back summary sometimes just to make sure it sounds like it's up my alley. Superluminal is one such title. Why did I decide to read the one with the mermaid swimsuit model on it today? I don't know, but let's find out if it was worth it. Stay tuned for space travel, whales, and the mysteries of the universe. Hello, Earthlings. Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast, where we take a look at science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Whether it's too old, too weird, or you already saw the movie, all unread and forgotten books are appreciated here. I am your host, Erica Brickley. You can find me and my library on Instagram at Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A-B-R-I-C-K-L-E-Y, where you can comment on books you'd like to hear about next time. Just remember that when you return to reality after today's episode, you should show as much love to planet Earth as we do to alien worlds, and maybe you're the only one we get. Subscribe to get more episodes about weird books. If it's not immediately obvious, I am uh, a little bit sick today, so I apologize in advance if anything I say is a little less clear or a little on the quiet side. I'll make sure to edit the music accordingly. (laughs) All right, let's get into it. As I said before, even now I can't be sure what made me decide to pick up and read Superluminal for the first time. Honestly, I feel like that about a lot of books. Why that one? Why that day? Yes, I bought it, so it was obviously already on the shelf, but I remember buying it more because I liked the sexy mermaid lady on the cover than because I really thought it would be any good. That being said, the back cover as well as the front uh, repeat several times that this is a book about light speed travel and the mysteries of deep space, not about sea people. As I said, the title is Superluminal, uh, which is awesome sounding, even though it doesn't tell me much of anything. The preview text says... Beyond the speed of light to a seventh dimension of space, a voyage into the mysteries of the universe. Then there is a beautiful illustration by Robert A. McGuire below the title, uh, against a background of dark, cloudy, starry night and waves rolling onto the beach. There are three people and a spaceship zooming by above their heads. Front and center is a woman who looks a lot like Nicole Kidman, with sharp features and angled eyebrows and an intense gaze. She's quite pale and has short platinum blonde hair in a swept-back pixie cut that makes her look of, uh, look very elf-like. She is sitting on her knees in the sand, legs spread apart, with her left hand resting on her left thigh while the right touches the wet ground. The woman has webbed hands, and she's wearing something like a swimsuit or a leotard that is bright blue with hot pink dripping down from the asymmetrical collar. She also has on a shimmery blue cape with a high vampire neckline. She could be a circus performer or an undersea siren. The other two figures are farther back to the left. One is a mustached, light-skinned man, all in black, standing in an action pose, with one hand up holding a pistol at the ready, uh, and the other hand out in defense of the woman behind him. The woman is also fair, with blonde or brown shoulder-length hair. Her outfit is black, Barbarella-style, Uh, It's a one-piece battle suit that looks more like a swimsuit, exposing her arms, legs, and chest. With that, she is wearing a pair of black boots. She is also holding a pistol, elbow bent to point the weapon towards the sky until she sees her next target, just like the man beside her. What can we learn from this cover? 
The first thing that uh, becomes abundantly clear is that I have loved mermaids ever since I was little, and I couldn't resist the call of the sexy space siren when I found this book several years ago. Aside from that, we can guess that there are three or more important characters who are worth featuring on the cover. Based on the layout, it seems like the water elf princess dressed in neons is our leading lady, and the two behind her are side characters or companions or something. Really, it's impossible to know what to expect with books like this, because you can't be sure how accurate the cover is to the story inside. When they say don't judge a book by its cover, it doesn't have to be an ugly cover to be misleading. This one is quite pretty, but I'm curious if all the women in it are going to be scantily clad, flirting with the camera in the artist's imagination. The artist is known for illustrating covers uh, for crime noir novels, so it kind of fits. Vonda N. McIntyre is today's author. She wrote Superluminal in 1983, and it was published by Pocket Books New York. Unfortunately, there isn't a bio included here for her. The copyright page says a portion of this book appeared in uh, the story Aztecs, which was part of an anthology, uh, and another portion called Transit popped up in Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine in 1983. She wrote several novels, including a handful of Star Trek no uh, stories, but Superluminal is the only one I've read so far. She won quite a few awards and has even included, uh, was even included in a book dedication by famous writer Robert A. Heinlein. Uh, as an interesting side note, Heinlein's novel Friday, with that dedication, also tends to feature a sexy, later, uh, sexy lady front and center on the cover. Looking back through the books we have covered so far, she is also our second female author to be featured on the channel. Just to review, this podcast currently has a four-book schedule. One, an obscure title, also known as Erica's Choice. Two, a classic novel. Three, a really weird-looking book. And four, a children's story. Today is episode five, so the cycle is starting over, and I picked a book off the shelf I didn't think anyone had heard of. The cover art doesn't make me cough, laugh, and shock, so we're going to include it as an obscure read rather than a WTF choice. This is a good time to mention that I can't promise any parents out there that this episode will be appropriate for your kids to listen to, though I always keep things light. I'm not trying to alienate anyone who wants to hear great sci-fi stories but might not want to hear the spicier bits. This book does contain some mentions of sex and the great unknown. Proceed with caution. Thanks. I've talked long enough about this. Let's start reading, keeping in mind that I don't know exactly how some of the names are supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> I did my best to guess, since Google wasn't being much help. Chapter 1 Linnea Trevelyan wakes up from surgery after a long period of sleep healing to the sound of a heartbeat coming from a nearby speaker. She's stiff, groggy, and has a painful new scar down the center of her chest, but this is exactly what she was hoping for. It's been 48 hours since she had voluntary surgery to remove her natural heart and replace it with a synthetic one that she can control. And now that that's done, the hospital is just one more place to confine her when she wants to be out amongst the stars. Seeing how determined Linnea is, more so even than other space pilots who get this surgery, Dr. Van de Graaff has her test out her new capabilities. Linnea fights headaches and dizziness as she enacts biocontrol over the pump that has replaced her heart. It is so efficient that she no longer has a pulse, the blood pushed through her veins perfectly without the usual rhythm. The doctor reminds Linnea of her training, since the pump is controlled by consciousness and willpower as well as involuntary function, and it's important to stay in control lest the powerful flow of blood damages her kidney or her brain. Linnea is eager for her new life as something different than a normal human with a heartbeat. 
though the doctor wants to be sure her body doesn't reject the pump, since this type of medicine is still fairly new. She has no intention of taking the old one back. Her mind will be at peace once the old one is cremated, and she holds the ashes in her hands. Soon, Linnea is bored out of her skull, waiting for the doctors to give her the all-clear. The only thing that keeps her from bolting is the brand new scar running up and down between her breasts. She lays in bed, practicing how to control the arteries and capillaries at will, something she has trained a whole year to be able to do before the surgery was approved. Despite discomfort and anger, Linnea doesn't take any sleeping pills for fear of dreamless sleep and nightmares. Finally, she's had enough. Linnea puts her clothes on, black pants, leather boots, a black sleeveless top with a lace-up front to reveal her new scar. She sneaks out of the hospital, gets in a rental car, and drives through the city wishing she was in space, where she could finally learn what the indescribable world of faster-than-light travel is really like. Reaching a grimy waterfront market area of cheap shops and restaurants, Linnea leaves the car and walks through the chilly, rainy night. She steps inside a shop of random clothes and objects. Ah, pilot, the old shop owner says when he sees her. You honor me. Linnea is delighted to be acknowledged like this for the first time. Though she hadn't planned to buy anything, the old man puts her in a dark velvet cloak, and she looks at herself in the mirror. Quote, she was too tall and big-boned for delicacy. She had a widow's peak and high cheekbones, but her jaw was strong and square. Unquote. Here I'll mention that the book said she has wavy, shoulder-length hair. Linnea tries to pay with her credit card, but the shopkeeper refuses, making her wonder if places like this only take cash. She stopped carrying it ages ago when she noticed her pockets were always full of mismatched alien currencies. Instead of money, the old man wants her to tell him what it's like during superluminal travel. Here is what the text says. He was the first person to ask her that question. People asked it often, of pilots. She had asked it herself, wordlessly, after the first few times of silence and patient head shakings. The pilots never answered. Machines could not answer. Pilots could not answer. Or would not. The question was answerable only individually. Linnea felt sorry for the shopkeeper. She started to say that she had not yet been in transit awake, that she was new, that she had only traveled in the crew, drugged near death to stay alive. But, finally, she could not say even that. It was too easy. It was an untrue truth. It implied she would tell him if she knew, while she did not know if she could or would. She shook her head. She smiled gently. I'm sorry. The old man accepts that she's unable to tell him. He has only traveled in transit once, and he was left with terrible dreams from sleeping through it. Linnea insists on paying before leaving to take the ferry across the water. In the cold weather, she can easily increase her blood pressure to feel warm, awake, and even high, but she knows better than to let her pump run at such addictive speeds or risk damage to her body. The ferry lets her off at the floating spaceport, and Linnea eagerly heads toward the crew quarters through the underwater city to show her friends the results of the surgery. In the crew lounge, Linnea can see out into the ocean depths where fish, sharks, and killer whales swim. She can also see her three best friends sitting near the glass across the room. At first, she expects them to greet her and hug her, but instead they are solemn and awkward as she stands outside the circle. She sits with them for a moment, but it is abundantly clear that things are different now. Linnea tells them goodbye and leaves. It pains her to know that she is not the exception to the rule, that like other pilots, the weight of her responsibility has come to rest on her shoulders before she has even taken flight. It would be her job to look over crew members like her friends and make sure they survived transit. 
Linnea seeks out two other pilots in the lounge, who are dressed like she is, with low-cut tops that show off their scars. She recognizes them as Mikala and Ramona Teresa, and wonders what pilots talk about now that she is separate from the rest of the people here. They are from the original group of human pilots who proved the people can withstand transit better than artificial intelligence. Linnea feels the weight of their legacy, as she is part of a new wave of pilots. Much to Linnea's surprise, the two older pilots lift their glasses and salute, and welcome her to join them. She giggles with delight, but gets too excited, and the pain in her chest becomes agonizing. Fortunately, the other pilots keep her calm and think about her training, how to stabilize her body. At first, Linnea worries they will send her back to the hospital, but it turns out Mikala and Ramona Teresa agree that being cooped up in the hospital is no way to heal especially not with a fake heartbeat in the background, when only people who truly desire pilot status and the lack of a heartbeat go through with the training and the operation. As two of the original 20 pilots, they agree that Linnea was always a special candidate, nearly waking up during transit sometimes. Linnea isn't disturbed to hear she almost woke up. If she had, she'd be dead from accelerated aging. Now, without a human heart, she has taken herself out of the planetary rhythm, free to pass between the stars while others sleep. As conversation continues, Linnea laments that her training flight isn't for a whole month, and hopes one of them might take her with them on a journey. But Ramona Teresa and Mikala refuse to take her or to talk about what transit is like. They acknowledge that she has the deep need to know what is out there, like all people who become pilots, and are amused by her fire yet will not take her, and she storms off. Linnea calms down, sitting away from people where she can look out into the ocean and play with her blood like the ebb and flow of the tides. The only other person around is a sleeping man in dark clothes. The text says, The sleeping man was several years younger than Linnea. She thought he must be as tall as she, but that estimation was difficult. He was one of those uncommon people so beautifully proportioned that from any distance at all, their height can only be determined by comparison. Nothing about him was exaggerated or attenuated. He gave the impression of strength, but it was the strength of agility, not violence. Linnea decided he was neither drunk nor drugged, but asleep. His face, though relaxed, showed no dissipation. His hair was dark blonde and shaggy, a shade lighter than his heavy mustache. He was far from handsome. His features were regular, distinctive, but without beauty. Below the cheekbones, his tanned skin was scarred and pitted, as though from some virulent childhood disease. Some of the outer worlds had not yet conquered their epidemics. Turning away, Linnea runs her fingers along the healing scar on her chest, wondering how she would get through a whole month of waiting before finally learning what it's like to be awake during faster-than-light travel. She dozes off thinking about it, and doesn't know how long she stays like that. Time flows differently for people without a pulse. When Linnea wakes up, she makes eye contact with the man who had previously been asleep. He's embarrassed, but she assures him, When I was a grounder, I stared at the crew, and when I was crew, I stared at pilots. The young man is named Radu Drakul, and he's a crew member from Twilight, a perpetually dark, cloudy world of mountains and wild forests. This is his very first time out. He is a reserved, guarded person, despite having a nice smile, and Linnea is careful to keep her distance, not touching him or getting too friendly, the way she might with other crew. Radu doesn't understand why so many of the people here in the lounge are drinking heavily, but it turns out he has the rare ability to dream during transit, while everyone else experiences endless, dreamless, dark sleep. They drink and party to fill the void left by that lost time. 
Linnea has never met anyone who didn't dread the emptiness of transit sleep. Feeling hungry, Linnea wants to go to a restaurant, but Radu declines her invitation. After some probing, she learns that he's used to food and room being given freely on the colony worlds, and he did not think to transfer money to himself for somewhere to stay while on Earth. Linnea assures him that she will pay because she wants to, and he accepts her hand, allowing himself to be led away. Far away, we meet Orca, a young woman who is part of a group of merpeople, referred to as divers. They don't have fishtails, but they are specially adapted to living in water, able to speak in the air or a different language underwater. At the moment, she's having a hard time with her father, who was a revolutionary when he was young, and his people struggled against the humans living on the land, nicknamed Landers. On this particular day, her brother is trying to get her to stay home, since in six weeks the change is happening. He doesn't have a nickname to be called by, like Orca does, because, like his father, he prefers the underwater language. Orca travels off-world as part of a spaceship crew, which most of her family assumes she does for the good pay, but in fact, she's drawn to the wider universe. Visiting alien planets is exciting, and she wishes she could experience faster-than-light travel, also called superluminal travel, like the pilots do. This isn't enough for me, she says, but her brother doesn't understand. He and the other divers feel there is more than enough to learn from the cousins, an unspecified race they live alongside in the ocean. They part on friendly terms, though her brother never swims with her all the way to the spaceport. Chapter 2 Wrapped in Linnea's cloak, she and Radu walk along the water in a light rain. He is new and so feels very homesick, and Linnea is happy to walk outside, away from the training rooms and hospitals. The two watch each other, putting an arm around each other to walk side by side under the cloak, and talk about the planet Twilight and Radu's let-down expectations. Back home, he worked hard with his hands with limited machinery, and thought grand things awaited him in space, but instead it's mostly mundane and dangerous. We spend most of our time carrying trivial cargoes for trivial reasons to trivial people, he says. Radu's homesickness is tempered only by his dreams of twilight, and Linnea thinks she would envy him if she hadn't already gotten surgery to move beyond transit sleep. As they walk along the edge of the port, they come across a party where non-crew hope space travelers will come and eat and drink and talk about their adventures. These are wealthy people in fine clothes with servants and lighted tables. Linnea and Radu enter and are greeted by the party host, Cathel Stafford, and her white tiger. She's an acquaintance of Linnea's, and the new pilot is uncomfortable to learn that Cathel now treats her with the same awe and deference as the old shopkeeper had. Other party guests come over for a chance to meet a pilot. The attention feels unearned. She hasn't even piloted anything yet. At the same time, she pities people who are still tied to the ticking clock of their hearts. The text says, A man came up to her and shook her hand. I've always wanted to meet an Aztec. His voice trailed off at Linnea's frown. She did not want to be churlish, so she put aside her annoyance. Just pilot, please. But Aztecs... The Aztecs sacrificed their captives' hearts, Linnea said. We aren't captives, and we certainly don't feel we've made a sacrifice. She turned away, ending the conversation before he could press forward with a witty comment. Linnea shivered and wished away the dense crowd of rich, free, trapped human beings. She wanted quiet and solitude. Noticing Linnea's distress, Cathel parts the crowd and takes her and Radu into the pavilion for peace and quiet, and Linnea falls asleep. She wakes up later, having dreamed of piloting a ship faster than light, and is relieved not to smell hospital antiseptics. 
Unfortunately, her whole body aches, starting from her cracked ribs and radiating out. Linnea drifts back to sleep, having a short conversation with Radu that she doesn't quite finish. Why did you stay? she asks, glad he's there. Because I wanted to stay with you. I remember you. Dot dot dot. She doesn't hear what he says before falling asleep again, and Radu breathes a sigh of relief that she woke up from her death-like sleep for even a few minutes. He wanders around the apartment, reminiscing about his home planet, before eventually becoming uncomfortable with the luxury and returning to Linnea's side. Finally, Linnea wakes up properly to find Radu passed out in a chair. She quietly goes off to bathe and is able to remove the tape off of her scar. Radu wakes up too, and they chat about how she got to Cathel's home from the party, carried like a dead body, while she picks out some clothes. Linnea insists that she still wants to take Radu out to dinner, especially after he spent a night looking after her. They go to one of Linnea's favorites, a place called Mark's, with a mysterious owner who only appears on a computer screen, never in person. This is Radu's first time in a restaurant, and he finds the process a bit odd. Choose food from a list, someone cooks it for you, and then you pay for the food you didn't make. But their spirits are high as they taste the wine. Radu admits that after tasting the better stuff on Earth, he can no longer be offended when people say Twilight makes bad wine. It also eases Radu's nerves. Linnea is intrigued by the way he seems to watch her, and she's pleased that now that he's relaxed, he doesn't look away when she gazes back at him. She can't quite decide what it is in his eyes, since it doesn't seem to be mere lust that draws him to her. Finally, when the tension is too much, Linnea asks him, What's up? You came to see Earth, but you haven't even left the port. Surely you had more interesting plans than to watch someone sleep. He glanced away, glanced back, slowly opened his fist, touched the edge of the glass with a fingertip. It's a prying question, but I think I have the right to ask it of you. I wanted to stay with you, he said slowly, and Linnea remembered those words in his voice from her half-dream awakening. I remember you, you said. He blushed, spots of high color on his cheekbones. I hoped you wouldn't remember that. Tell me what you meant. It all sounds foolish and childish and romantic. She raised one eyebrow, questioning. For the last day, I've felt I've been living in some kind of unbelievable dream. Dream rather than nightmare, I hope. You gave me a gift I wished for for years. A gift? What? Your hand? Your smile? Your time? His voice had grown very soft and hesitant again. When the plague came on Twilight, all my clan died. Eight adults and four other children. I almost died, too. His fingers brushed his scarred cheek. Linnea thought he was unaware of the habit. But the medical team came, isolated the cryptovirus, and synthesized a vaccine. I was already sick, but I recovered. The crew of the Mercy Mission... We stayed several weeks, Linnea said. More details of her single visit to Twilight returned. The settlements near Collapse, the desperately ill trying to attend the dying. You were the first crew member I ever saw. The first off-worlder. You saved my people, my life. Radu, it wasn't only me. I know. I even knew then. It didn't matter. I was sick for so long, and when I came to and knew I would live, it hardly mattered. I was frightened and full of grief and loss and alone. I needed someone to admire. And you were there. You were the only stability in my chaos. A hero. His voice trailed off in uncertainty as Linnea smiled. This isn't easy for me to say. Radu is almost disappointed that Linnea has become a pilot, because generally they are solitary and keep their distance from crew members. 
Linnea acknowledges that the original pilots kept apart for their own reasons, but doesn't feel she needs to do the same. Then Radu says, I think I've loved you since the day you came to Twilight. He's immediately embarrassed, apologizing because he doesn't want to burden Linnea with his hopes. What about my hopes? She asks him. I've had less time to think of you than you of me, but I think you're beautiful and an admirable man. As Linnea is inviting Radu to stay here on Earth with her for the next month until she's able to fly and he can join that crew, Ramona Teresa walks into the restaurant. The older pilot glances at Radu, then addresses Linnea. They want you to go back. After a bit of discussion, Ramona loans Linnea some cash when it becomes clear the new pilot will not be led back easily. She'd rather lay low than return to the hospital rooms and testing. Now she's annoyed not only by the administrator's attempts to control her, but also by Ramona's condescending attitude towards Radu. When Ramona leaves, Linnea assures Radu that just because the older pilot is a grand, intimidating person doesn't mean she must be listened to. All crew members, all pilots, everyone who goes into space is a little different in one way or another. Radu says, They may have a special reason for wanting you to go back. Some problem, some danger. They'd have said so. Then what do they want? Ramona said it. They want to prove they control us. She drank the last few drops of her brandy. Radu followed suit. They rose and walked together toward the foyer. They want to keep me packed in foam like an expensive machine until I can take my trip. Back at Cathel's place, Linnea and Radu fall into bed together and have a night of tenderness and passion. Far off, quote, Orca felt tired after the long swim from Harmony to the spaceport. She swam into the ferry dock, paused where water and air and the metal ramp intersected. The air world began to come back to her. Her metabolism slowed, and she felt chilly. She never noticed the cold, deep in the sea. She stood and shook the water from her short, pale hair. She had arrived just ahead of the ferry. Orca hurried toward the deck. Swimmers, even divers, were not supposed to come on board this way, but her people used the pier as if it had been built for them. They stayed out of the way of arriving and departing ferries, but that was only common sense. Orca has dark tan skin, fair hair, webbed hands, and a slender swimming form. She also happens to be naked, which locals and space crews are used to, but a few tourists stare. The first time she wore clothes was when she was 13, and even now they're more for decoration than function in her opinion. As she travels through the port to the crew quarters, Orca notices, quote, her message signal had been glowing, a pinpoint of light behind her eyes. Granting acceptance, she received the messages through her internal communicator. They scrolled across the screen she imagined in her mind, and she scanned each one quickly, unquote. Among the messages is an invitation to meet with the pilot selection committee. Orca is annoyed, not only because she had to decline these invitations many times, but also because she is tempted by the offer to apply. While a pump heart is the right thing for space travel, it's unknown whether they can withstand the pressure of deep underwater dives. To become a pilot is to abandon her life as a diver. Chapter 3 Linnea has a bit of a scare after making love. She momentarily loses control of her artificial heart, feeling her rhythm speed up and then slow alarmingly. It gets her thinking about what to do next. While returning to the hospital is the easiest thing, it's what she wants to do least of all. Quote, Outwitting the administrators would be more fun. Unquote. She wants to explore her new body, meet other pilots, show Radu the sights, and so on. The use of Cathal's place has been extremely helpful for maintaining anonymity since she hasn't had to use her credit card. She and Radu lounge around in colorful blankets, discussing the problem, but also cuddling and tickling each other. 
The thing that really dampens her mood is thinking about the ultimate alternative. If she really wasn't well after all the modern medicine and drugs she'd been on after the surgery, the doctors would have put her old heart back in to save her, not insisted on keeping her around for endless tests. People who fail to become pilots are badly traumatized and never go to space again. Linnea's true nightmare. Radu reminds her that that's not what happened, and she softens because, yes, she does have an artificial heart and is a pilot now. She simply desires freedom more than anything else, and the administrators want to hinder that. Her conclusion is that she must stay here on the spaceport until the month is over, but she doesn't want to hold Radu back to keep her company. However, he assures her that he's more interested in her than historical sites. That settled, the two go for a swim in Cathal's pool. Linnea floats and soaks her sore scar, while Radu swims laps. Cathal rarely has guests and doesn't spend much time at home, so they have the place to themselves. Though he's enjoying the luxury, Radu struggles to understand the lavish lifestyles of Earthlings after growing up on a developing colony world where people work many jobs for survival rather than pleasure. With her new heart, Linnea finds it's not just her blood flow and sense of time that have changed. Sex is a totally different beast, difficult to slow down and enjoy, but she's glad to have Radu there to ride the wave with her. Quote, he had about him a quality of constancy, of dependability and calm, that Linnea had never before encountered. His admiration for her was of a different sort entirely from what she was used to, grounders lusting after status and vicarious excitement. Radu had seen her and stayed with her when she was helpless and ordinary and as undignified as a human being can be. That had not changed his feelings. Linnea did not understand him yet. Unquote. When they get hungry, they head out to find food and notice waiters putting out chairs and tables in front of sidewalk cafes. Radu comments that 7 o'clock seems pretty early, and Linnea is surprised to learn he has an excellent, innate sense of time, even though he's not on his home planet. As they eat breakfast and chat, Linnea is reminded that Radu also has the incredible ability to dream during transit. They hold hands while they eat and are both taken aback by how easy it is to be together, how they already are thinking of how they'll spend their time with each other days, weeks, and years in the future. What will they do when this month is over and Radu must return to being a normal crew member, no longer in charge of his own schedule? Back at Cathel's, they take a nap and Linnea wakes up twice. The first time is when she realizes she can feel Radu's heartbeat against her and she moves away from him still divorcing herself from the normal rhythms she had gladly abandoned. The second time happens when Radu thrashes and cries out in nightmares, startling her awake. He makes so much noise that one of Cathal's servants comes knocking, but Radu insists he's fine and they're sent away. He and Linnea sit there, sweating, hearts pounding, as he tells her about his dream of falling from something broken, landing in water with a strong current, needing to breathe but not letting himself, and panicking. Stressed and remembering her own traumatic experiences, Linnea is almost more shaken than Radu is, and it takes a long time for her to calm down and regain control of her heart pump. It's dangerous for it to pump so hard for so long, lest it kill brain cells by pushing too much blood into her skull. For the first time, Linnea realizes that there may be a reason why pilots and crew don't mix. Their bodies exist at different biorhythms that interfere with each other. Not only will her presence disturb Radu's mind, his could push her into physically dangerous rhythms. Now they're wide awake and awkward, unsure if they should touch each other, and decide to go get something to eat to fill the silence. They lose themselves in their own thoughts, Linnea feeling silly for wanting to schedule time with Radu in the future. A part of her wants to suggest that Radu becomes a pilot, but she's not sure a permanent change like that is right for him. 
Back at Cathel's, they spend some time apart to think. Linnea in the pool while Radu goes to feel the ocean breeze. Quote, She felt trapped and angry, with nowhere to run, knowing no one deserved her anger. Certainly not Radu, not the other pilots who had warned her, not even the administrators, who in their own misguided way had tried to make her transition as protected as possible. The anger could turn inward toward her strong-willed, stubborn character. But that, too, was pointless. All her life she had made her own mistakes and her own successes, both usually by trying what others said she could not do. Unquote. Eventually, after wandering around all day, she finds him in the living room. He says that he applied for pilot training, which Linnea is sad to hear because she knows he loves his homeworld, but he tells her it doesn't matter. He was rejected. They said I'd never even make it through the training. I'm bound to our own four dimensions. I'm too dependent on night, day, time. My circadian rhythms are too strong. His muffled words became more and more unsure, balanced on a shaky edge. Linnea stroked his hair, the back of his neck, over and over. That was the only thing left to do. There was nothing at all left to say. If I survive the operation, I'd die in transit. He feels ashamed for not being able to endure what Linnea has, and feels unworthy of her. Holding each other, Linnea and Radu sob with grief, professing their love even though it's useless at this point. The couple sleeps together one last time before Linnea leaves Radu to sleep and slips away to her room. She spends the night awake, trying to regain control of her heart pump, afraid to sleep. Chapter 4 Radu wakes up alone and goes to find Linnea asleep. He doesn't wake her, simply taking his duffel bag. Quote, Nothing he and Linnea could say to each other could change anything now. Pilots did not mix with ordinary human beings. Linnea was a pilot, and Radu was an ordinary human being. The documents from the pilot selection committee proved he would never be anything more. Unquote. He feels as alone as he did after the plague on Twilight wiped out his family. Dreams were fulfilled, then shattered. Radu heads for the control office, walking to help himself, thinking, determined to get off this planet. Unfortunately, his thoughts keep turning to the last few days he spent with Linnea, at which point he passes by where Cathel Stafford's party had been. There's still one tent left standing. Inside is Cathel, alone aside from her white tiger. She's not surprised to see him and is honest that her tiger is dying, so she sent all the party guests away. It's a deformed animal, bred for color rather than health, and for a moment the wealthy woman and the man from Twilight are in agreement. Though she could pay to keep the tiger alive, it's right to let him go. Her other friends wouldn't understand that, seeing his beautiful color and expensive price tag more than his comfort. Slowly, the animal dies. Cathel is sad, but becomes alarmed when she realizes she allowed Radu to sit through this with her. She doesn't like owing people favors. Radu argues that he comes from a place where people have to depend on each other. There's no shame in it. I depend on no one, Cathel says. I never accept gratitude. She leads him outside, and the tent catches fire, cremating the tiger. Cathel tries once more to send him away while she gathers the ashes, but when Radu pats her shoulder one last time, she collapses against him, sobbing. Just as suddenly, she pushes him away, insisting angrily that she now owes him, unable to think of his kindness as the gift that it is. I told you to leave me alone, she says, angry and resentful. I never asked for your help. What do you want? Radu shook his head, startled and confused. I don't want anything. I owe you now. I won't leave debts unpaid. I want nothing from you, he says, feeling as if he's given an unwelcome gift, then demanded reciprocation. You are Linnea's friend, 
and you were kind to me as well. That wasn't kindness, she says sharply. I didn't even notice it. That has nothing to do with this. Nonsense, Radu says. If you feel that a few minutes of time and sympathy need to be repaid, then I am repaying you. I don't permit anything I give to be repaid, she says. Then permit me the same courtesy. The conversation had evolved into a strange and disquieting game, which he expected at every move to be ended with Cathal's being convinced that he had no secret motives. No, Cathal said. Courtesy has nothing to do with it. I owe you. I do not like to be in debt. Is that so hard to understand? You are not in my debt, Radu says. He felt as if he had been repeating himself for a long time. This is trivial. This is silly. Why are you insisting that I demand something of you when I want nothing? Because once I accept something, I'll never stop, she shouts. She took one quick step toward him with her fists clenched and her eyes narrowed to slits. I'll not be accused of that ever again. The outburst shocks him. Who accused you of such a thing? And why would you believe it? You don't know me, Cathal says. You never will. And God's willing, neither will anyone else. I ask you to forgive me this debt, Radu says. That's all I want, for you to believe I want nothing. Don't insult me, she cries. You're saying my reasons are meaningless, and they are not. Radu reaches out to her in supplication, but she struck his hand away. Angry at her for misunderstanding his motion, Radu steps back and gradually unclenches his fists. I want nothing from you, he says again. I will accept nothing. I'm leaving Earth. With any luck, I'll never see it, or you, again. He walks around her, staying well out of reach to continue on his way. I owe you, and I intend to pay you and be done with it. Radu flushes scarlet in anger and humiliation, but he keeps on walking. Choose, Cathal says behind him, and pick something soon, or you'll have made yourself an enemy. Radu leaves. He goes to the control office to see what ships are leaving Earth that he can get a job on, and finds that the best option has a human pilot. <sighs> there aren't many of them yet, so most ships are driven through transit by machines, and he curses his luck not wanting to associate with anyone who makes him think of Linnea. So he picks the automated flight with the highest pay, going to the farthest distance, and is pleased that his assignment is approved by an old friend named Atna. Without having been outside to witness a single Earth sunrise, Radu leaves planet Earth behind. Linnea wakes up feeling bruised and beaten, both physically and emotionally. It hurts her to know that Radu left so efficiently, clearly never wanting to see her ever again. She finds out he is already on a ship leaving Earth and feels resigned to her new life. She would, quote, return to her own city and her own people, the pilots, to live apart with them and never tell their secrets, unquote. And indeed, she feels better when she arrives at the pilots' quarters and is welcomed by other pulseless people. Meanwhile, Radu is greeted by his friend Atna on board the ship that will take him away. Atna is an older crew member, kind and intelligent, and he asks if Radu is okay. There have been a lot of rumors about him and Linnea, but Radu assures him everything is fine. Another person joins them, who Atna introduces as Orca. The text says, Radu turned. He had not heard the other crew member arrive. She walked so slowly in her rubber-soled red deck shoes. Like many crew members, she dressed flamboyantly. She wore silver pants, a silver mesh shirt, and a spangled jacket of a pattern like fish scales. Silver, gold, brass, red, copper... Her skin, set off by her very short, pale, fine hair, was smooth mahogany tan, and her eyes were black. Her hands were rather large in proportion to the rest of her. Radu glanced at her hands again, surprised. She was a diver. She fully introduces herself as Orca of the Harmony Isles of Earth. Soon after, the time comes for everyone to go to sleep as the ship traveled faster than the speed of light. Radu and Orca hug each other, as is customary, to say goodnight and goodbye. 
He has just enough time to think about Atna shutting off the computer's main functions before putting himself to sleep and letting the ship dive into transit. Much to his surprise, Radu wakes up to see a famous pilot named Vasily Nikolaevich. He's an unusual one, wearing his shirt buttoned up rather than showing off his chest scar. Vasily explains that, for reasons unknown, he was assigned to the ship at the last minute and the cargo was removed. Though odd, they have no reason to think anything mysterious is going on. More than anything, Radu wants Vasily to get away from him. It might be the memory of Linnea, or it might be a newfound aversion to all pilots, but either way, he's relieved when Vasily returns to the pilot's cabin when it becomes clear Radu doesn't need help waking up and can look after Atna and Orca. It frightens him that he might react this way to every pilot from now on. The pilots kept to themselves and their secrets, never speaking of this level of incompatibility with normal humans. The others are still too asleep to do anything, so Radu heads to the control room. The text says, At the sight of the viewport he stopped. Astonished, an emerald green, cloud-wisped world hung just above them. The ship had surfaced out of transit with accuracy impossible for an automated ship and unusual for a piloted one. Most ships return to normal space in more or less the correct region, too close for another dive, but far enough away that the crew had to travel in real time at subliminal speeds for a week or a month, unable to escape the boredom even with transit drugs. They were too toxic for any use but sleeping through transit. Sometimes a ship surfaced so far off its course that it had to dive again, and sometimes the ships went so far astray that no one on board could figure out where they were, and so they were lost. At least that was what everyone assumed happened to lost ships. There was no real evidence that they did not remain in transit forever, and some theoretical evidence that they did. Radu glanced again at the bright world above, impressed despite himself by the pilot's skill. Vasily Nikolaevich's reputation was well earned. Checking the awakened computer, Radu learns that the ship's destination was changed to Nithumalan. At first he's afraid that this is an alien planet that he hasn't been immunized for and won't be allowed to land on, but apparently it was settled by Australians. The ship was scheduled to stop there, then immediately return to Earth. Everyone would get a generous bonus if they got the job done quickly, and the shipping company would certainly get a lot from this mission, which explains why the quick change and the addition of the pilot like Vasily to make sure this profitable venture was a success. There continue to be painful reminders everywhere that Radu is not remarkable enough to become a pilot himself. As the lowest ranking member on board, Radu accepts his chores and makes stew before waiting for Atna and Orca to wake up. He wonders what he should do with himself now. Travel and Earth don't seem to be that appealing. He's homesick, but is haunted by the ghosts of his dead families. The scars on his cheeks mark him as one of the rare survivors of the plague, and he sees the pain in people's eyes as they wonder why he lived while others perished. Growing a beard or getting skin grafts would make him feel like he was forever wearing a facade, and he can't stand that any more than the stairs. Atna wakes up first, shivering and groggy, until he completely comes to. He tells Radu that he volunteered the ship for the new piloted mission because Nithumalan is his homeworld. Plus, he thinks there might be some kind of emergency. Before he can continue, Orca starts to wake up, so Radu goes to help her. He hugs her and rubs her shoulders, as he did with Atna, as all good crew members do to ease the transition back to consciousness. She handles it better than Atna, who ages a little more with each trip. The text says, Everything about Orca, her prominent canines, her lithe walk, her narrow hips and small breasts and large eyes and hands, all her features were at one end or the other of the normal range. So except for the swimming webs, Radu could not tell what about her was inherent and what intentionally changed. He admitted his fascination to himself. Whatever factors had formed Orca, they combined into a being of ethereal grace. She was not by any classical definition beautiful, but she was striking. 
Somehow it made Radu uncomfortable to find her so attractive because he felt as if he were betraying Linnea. Soon there's no time to think about it because the computer announces they have less than an hour to perform all their tasks before heading down to the planet. Nathumalin is a tropical place covered in rivers and lakes. The shuttle touches down on a primitive landing pad and prepares to receive the cargo. An old friend of Atna's is there to load the shipment of Wayunas, which are meant to reach Earth in time for a major holiday and be sold for a high price that will easily cover the express shipping costs. What is a Wayuna? Atna leads Radu through the steamy forest to an orchard not yet harvested. The text says, It was as if he had broken through into a winter forest after an ice storm. The tree's bare limbs sparkled like diamonds. Radu followed Atna into the ice forest until they were surrounded by silver and black. Fallen leaves lay mushy and rotting on the ground, but the bark of the trees sprouted thousands of marble-sized transparent spheres, all intricately patterned inside and out in loops and swirls shaped by the uncertainties of their growth. Each was slightly different, like a snowflake or a fingerprint. The trees sang so delicately that their wind chime whisper was inaudible anywhere but among the shimmering crystals. Atna stripped several from an end of a branch and handed them to Radu. They fractured the sunlight into a hundred tiny rainbows, sparkling among the arches and prisms. Apparently, Wayunas are tree warts that were invented to be profitable, growing on specially adapted trees. This is a common practice for a terraformed world like Nathumalin, where everything is transplanted or artificially evolved. The Wayunas serve no purpose other than to be beautiful jewels that earthlings will pay for. Radu doesn't really care for sparkly, useless things, but Atna insists he keep a handful of the jewels. Maybe he can give some to Linnea as gifts for her friends, as an excuse to see her again. Atna is quiet as they return to the landing pad and say their goodbyes, as Atna plans to stay here at home for a while. They embrace, and Radu pushes his friend to tell him what's wrong, and Atna tells him, Don't leave. He had a vision in the orchard, and strongly believes that once the ship goes into transit, it will never come out again. He wants Radu to take Orca and stay here. Something's going to happen to the ship, and you're a part of it, Atna says desperately. You're in the middle of it. I think perhaps you are it. Vasily can get the ship from orbit to transit point without a crew. After that, it doesn't matter. You can tell him if you want, but he won't pay any attention. Pilots never think they can fail. I can't save him. I can't save the cargo. You and Orca are the only ones I can warn. Though distant in the eyes as a plague sufferer, Atna has no fever or other symptoms. He lets Radu go, but says goodbye as if he's sure his friend is already dead. Radu returns to the ship to begin takeoff checks. Atna's words bother him. After all, things happen to ships in transit and out. Space travel can be dangerous. As Radu tries to look up more disease symptoms in the computer, Pilot Vasily finds him and scolds him for not finishing his tasks when it's so close to launch time. Though contrite, Rondu admits he's worried about what Atna said. But before he can go any further, Vasily says, You mean he told you your future? People from Nathumalin are always claiming to know the future. Surprised by this, Radu returns to his duties and the shuttle returns to the ship in orbit. He speaks to Vasily again, who says it's commendable of him to be concerned for his fellow crew members, but unnecessary since the people of Nathumalin are strange and therefore Atna is strange. When Vasily declines the gift of Wawayuna, Radu goes to check that Orca is ready for transit, feeling like a fool. Orca is a much more encouraging presence, complimenting Radu's smooth shuttle docking. She also appreciates the Wayuna. Though he feels silly, Radu promised Atna he would tell Orca the warning. So he does, because he is also Atna's friend. He had a premonition, I suppose, he says, continuing that Atna thought something bad would happen in transit, but the pilot isn't worried. 
Orca, on the other hand, becomes very serious. Though she doesn't want to leave the ship, she says, Atna's dreams are as real as this world. They're another level of reality, another way of perceiving things. Orca isn't sure how to explain without her more detailed underwater language. Radu is conflicted, not sure how to feel, only knowing a shiver runs up his spine. He can only follow Orca's lead. To add a note of humor, she says, Nuthumalin has a million lakes and no ocean. I'd sooner vacation in a bathtub. She calmly goes into her sleep box, and Radu follows, not sure why he feels so tense. Chapter 5 Radu wakes from dreams of Linnea calling him to discover that sirens are blaring and the artificial gravity is broken. He gets out of his sleep box and stumbles under waves of weightlessness and heaviness. Finally, the spinning feeling ends with the siren, and Radu gets himself to a viewport to see that the ship is approaching a red giant rather than Earth's yellow dwarf sun. Sweating from stress, he finds pilot Vasily to find out what the emergency is. The emergency is that you started to wake up in transit, Vasily says. The sensors protected you. They threw us back into normal space. Don't look so worried. You're all right. They worked in time. At first, Vasily looks flushed and worried, but now he's completely calm again. Normal people who wake up during transit die a horrible, accelerated death, and since Radu did not, it was no use dwelling on it. He tells Radu to figure out what went wrong with the anesthetic so they can get him back into the sleep box and on their way. And Radu does so, though he can't shake his envy of pilots who get to see what it's like in transit and is haunted by the remnants of his dreams. Unfortunately, after hours of work, Radu can't figure out what woke him up. The tubes in the machine are fine. His blood chemistry is fine. Did he have a sudden reaction to one of the drugs? That sometimes happens. Going to Vasily, he explains his hypothesis, which Vasily notes is quite rare. Since Vasily won't consider the possibility that Atna was right or sick with a disease Radu could catch, the pilot also assumes there must have been a reaction. Despite his aversion to needles, Vasily helps Radu with the anesthetic needle, sending him off to sleep. Radu dreams of Linnea. At first, she murmurs words of love, kissing him all over, but then she sinks her teeth into his wrist until it gushes blood. She apologizes, saying she didn't mean to, and drifts away until Radu is waking up to the same flashing lights and gravity fluctuations. The anesthetic tubes came out of his arm, leaving a bloody gash behind that he presses on to stop the flow. Somehow he tore it out while asleep. He stumbles out of his sleep box, groggy from waking up too fast. Vasily comes storming in a moment later. The pilot is furious until he sees the deadly wound. Vasily is as bad with blood and gore as he is with needles, but he manages to get Radu patched up while clenching his teeth. They both feel uncomfortable sitting so near each other, their heart rhythms out of sync. It's a relief when Vasily can walk away to wash his hands. Hesitantly, Radu asks if it's possible to contact Earth from transit, if not from normal space, because he can't shake the terrible feeling of his nightmares, the first ones he's ever had during transit sleep. Vasily is angry he would bring up Linnea. You have to leave her alone, he says. If she weren't so damned stubborn, you two would never have gotten together. It would have been better if you hadn't. But if you don't stay away from her, you'll destroy her. Can't you understand that? Of course Radu understands, and the knowledge that he and Linnea are the subject of gossip is as painful as their separation and the way he caused her pain. The two try to figure out how Radu woke up, working in angry silence. There doesn't seem to be any clear reason, so the computer again suggests that it was a drug reaction. So, despite the fearful side effects, Radu retrieves the third and final anesthetic, a large pill. As he heads back to his sleep box, Vasily says he'll get them on a course home once Radu is asleep. And soon, he is. And, as you might expect, he woke up again. The third time was the worst. He was convinced Linnea was screaming, dying, somewhere, and he clawed at the sleep box lid, even though Vasily tried to keep him inside, pushing his way out to retch and sob in frustration. The worst of it passes. 
Neither he nor Vasily knows what to do. By some miracle, Radu looks and feels the same. But there's no way he or the ship can go through this again, not to mention there are no more drugs to try. To complicate things, Vasily doesn't know where they are, since the constellations where they popped out of transit are uncharted. The only way for him to get his bearings is to return to the faster-than-light-speed pocket dimension. He's identified a habitable planet, and Radu agrees that they might be able to leave him behind in the shuttle for someone to come back for him and possibly colonize the planet while they're at it. Then again, this has never happened before this way. Vasily says that the first time Radu woke up, the ship fell out of transit near a star that was just barely charted. The second time was in an unknown place, but Vasily made an educated guess. This time he's even more uncertain. It's safest to go in small steps, he says. We've taken a couple of very large ones. Exploration isn't as easy as going down a path and then turning around and coming back. You can't do that because when you turn around, it doesn't look the same. When Radu doesn't understand, Vasily hopelessly says, It's transit. I can't explain it. I shouldn't even try. They go back and forth on this. River rapids are the closest they come to finding an analogy. In short, though Vasily might be able to figure out where this place is once he gets back to Earth, it's not certain that he would succeed and therefore he can't promise anyone would come rescue Radu. Although Vasily wonders if Radu could make a life for himself on this newly discovered world since he grew up on a primitive colony planet, Radu shuts that idea down immediately. His choices have narrowed to dying in transit or dying on an unknown world. I'd rather die quickly than slowly, he says. Frustrated, Vasily says, maybe this is what happens to all the ships that are lost. Maybe transit spits them out and never lets them back in. Radu realizes that Earth means less to Vasily than transit does, as if that is a pilot's true home. So, they accept the only way forward. Radu's will is written, alive or dead, he'll be returned to Twilight. And though he would like to have someone with him while he dies, he'd rather not be Vasily. So the pilot leaves him alone to return the ship to lightspeed jump. Before he goes, Vasily leaves him a vial of poison given to pilots in case of situations like this, leaving it up to Radu what he wants to do, since there's no way to know in transit how long it will take for him to succumb. Radu awaits his first conscious trip into transit as the ship vibrates around him. The universe outside the viewport disappears, replaced by flat grayness. Nothing inside is any different, and Radu feels the same as before. Out of curiosity, he focuses on his perception of time, which has always been perfect. The text says, Relativity required that time, as Radu perceived it, pass at different rates in different places. He was used to that, and he was used to feeling the changes intensify whenever he was on an accelerating ship. Here, in transit, the underlying order had dissolved into chaos. Time passed in one place at one rate, in another at another. But when he thought about the first again, the hierarchy had changed. How he perceived that there was a change, he did not know. It was like being in a dark room, surrounded by moving sculptures, able to look at each one only for a moment as a single light rested on one, blinked off, and blinked on, illuminating another in a random order at dizzying speed. He stopped trying to sort out his perceptions and waited quietly until he regained his equilibrium. Then he focused his attention on subjective time only. To his surprise, it felt and behaved exactly as it would have if he had been in any other place. Pilots were said to experience a perturbation of their time sense in transit, but perhaps that was a result of the changes they submitted to in freeing themselves from the disparity between relativistic time and normal space and the non-relativistic universe of transit. However ordinary transit felt to Radu, it was profoundly unknown, and he was in danger. He could do nothing. He could not even reassure himself. He could only wait, without knowing how long the wait would be. So he waited, drenched in slow, cold sweat, staring out the porthole at the infinite, blank grayness. 
Once in a while, he thought he saw a flash of color outside, but the flashes were always at the edge of his vision and disappeared before he could look at them directly. He decided that they must be his imagination. Hugging his knees to his chest, he put his head down. Comforted by darkness, he waited. Radu can count the hours, but they still feel like days of anticipation and dread. After a while of being unable to allow himself to sleep and thinking he hears Linnea's voice, he goes to the control room to find Vasily. The pilot is shocked to see Radu, but composes himself and says he's got them on the right path now. He breathes through a pure oxygen mask here in transit, another symptom of pilot's physical oddities. He has no way to tell how much longer the jump will last, nor if Radu's accelerated aging will happen while they're still in transit or as they leave. For a while, Vasily works, and Radu watches an inarticulate clock until the pilot speaks again. The text says, Now that you've seen it, Vasily says, what do you think of it? I beg your pardon? Think of what? Transit, Radu frowns. I think it's excessively dull. But if you want to invent mysteries about it, I won't tell the secret. The pilot's expression was nearly as surprised as when Radu appeared awake and alive and unchanged. You mean you don't see it? You don't feel it? See what? Feel what? The pilot flung out his arms, pointed to the viewport. See that, and feel its presence, all around you, palpable. It's indescribable. It's different for everyone. But there's nothing there, Radu says. Vasily Nikolaevich did not reply for a moment. Then, what did you say? There's nothing there. A blank gray fog. No space, no stars, just nothing. You see nothing? Are you trying to make a fool of me? Shall I put my fantasies up there for your entertainment? Roder spoke in anger. His fantasies were too painful even for him. What are you? The pilot whispers. Are you some disguised machine? Are you being tested? Am I? What? Radu almost laughs, but the pilot is deadly serious and frightened. I'm a human being, just like you. He stretched out his arm, and his sleeve hiked up above the bandage on his wrist. Pilot, you've seen me bleed. The pilot shrugged. Easy enough to counterfeit. This is ridiculous, Radu says. Intelligent machines don't function properly in transit. Everyone knows that. Nor do hum ordinary human beings. If they invented such a machine, there'd be no reason to keep it a secret. Pilots would be obsolete. We may be anyway, because of you, no matter what you are, despite all of the effort that's gone into making us acceptable. This conversation makes no sense, pilot, Radu says. He could think of no gentler way to put it. If someone went to all the trouble of making a human machine, this would be a purely idiotic way to test it. And if someone made a human machine, they'd choose a better face than mine to put it behind. The pilot's tension eased slightly. That's true, he said with childlike cruelty. That last, at least, is true. But machine or not, you're immune to transit, you're oblivious to it, and whatever you are, you make pilots redundant. I'm no pilot, Radu says. I haven't the ability or the skills, and I haven't the desire. I'm no threat to you. Facing the blank window, the pilot took a deep, slow breath. Maybe you really believe that, he says, his back to Radu so his voice sounded remote. Or wish you did, but you're wrong. Radu folds his arms, glowering. Or you could be wrong, he said sarcastically. I could still die. No, the pilot said softly. It'll be a long time before your bones go to dust. You'll live, unless I kill you myself. Astonished, Radu made no response. Go away, the pilot says. Please go away. Radu left the control room, though the tortured plea asked far more of him than that. Chapter 6 Radu wonders if all the rumors about pilots being a little crazy are true, if Vasily really would harm him to maintain his status. He throws out the poison pills in disgust as the ship exits transit, a hardly noticeable shift. 
Nothing happens. Radu is unharmed. Vasily closes himself away into the pilot's quarters. What Radu wants most to do is call Linnea, but he can't while she's on her first transit flight. Instead, he does tasks around the ship, makes breakfast, and helps Orca when she wakes up. She feels particularly awful this time, pale and shaky. I'm glad Atna stayed home, she says. That was a hard dive. I don't know what it would have done to him. I think he was right to be afraid. Yes, Radu agrees reluctantly. Yes, his vision was correct. Orca goes off to perform her own tasks, and Radu resets the clock in the lounge. They have been gone for six weeks, which is within range of their goal. Everyone will get their bonuses, and Vasily might be able to return to his exploration team that he was diverted from. Radu does try to call Linnea, but her training ship is still away. What do you plan to do? Radu started at Vasily's sudden appearance. I don't know. I'd plan to find another automated ship and go back out again, but... You can't fly out on an automated ship anymore. You'll blast it out of transit every time. I realize that. Tell me something. Do you dislike me in particular, or pilots in general? Neither, Radu said. It's only that I react to pilots the same way pilots react to normal people when they're too near. What? Radu shrugs. I've never heard of that happening before, Vasily says. Radu plans to let administration know about what happened for the sake of others who might knock ships out of transit, but Vasily is infuriated by the idea. He's come to think of Radu as a threat to all pilots, and therefore believes that what happens next is not up to Radu, but to people like him who worked so hard to experience superluminal travel, who all but gave up their humanity for it. Vasily is sure Radu would be dissected while essentially betraying all pilots. You know, Radu says, Atna's premonition was right. Vasily refuses to acknowledge this, so he storms off, and Orca comes in wanting to know what's going on. To keep things simple, Radu simply says that Vasily was reminding him about the relative status of pilots and crew. She's doubtful, but doesn't push the subject. The ship arrives at Earth Station, located on the moon. Everyone is paid for the speed delivery job, though Vasily and Radu are too distracted to really care. Orca steps up to thank the Nathumalan marketing agent, then scolds the boys and storms off to the engine room. The pilot follows suit, heading for his quarters. Radu glances at the computer display Vasily has been looking at and sees a fading message stating that the pilot was replaced for the exploration mission he had hoped to return to. His disappointment is understandable. After Vasily leaves and Radu finishes his tasks, he finds Orca to tiredly apologize for his behavior. He also explains why Vasily was upset, though she says he shouldn't be surprised. A fast pilot is better for commerce than exploration, whether they like it or not. Orca is an experienced crew member and can see more of the shady inner workings of trade than Radu has learned to. The two get off the ship. Inside Earth Station, Radu sees all the money he made from this voyage, though most of it goes straight back to his home planet Twilight to help pay off the debt incurred by the plague. There aren't any ships leaving yet, so Radu is stuck here for a bit. Meanwhile, Orca is headed home to the Strait of Georgia, located in North America, for a family meeting. She admits she doesn't get along with her family very well, but she does miss them. Radu doesn't press the issue for fear she might ask him about himself. To their surprise, six pilots are waiting for them in the crew quarters, including a very cold, angry Vasily Nikhailovich. Though they ignore her, Orca bravely takes Radu's hand and stays with him. She doesn't know what's going on, but she doesn't like it and pushes through with Radu, whose heart is beginning to thud with the presence of so many pilots pursuing them. Soon he can't walk anymore and collapses, feeling better only when the pilots retreat. Orca wants to get help, but he stops her. Radu isn't sure what to tell her, reluctantly saying that he reacts badly to pilots for reasons unknown. Orca deduces that the pilots almost certainly want him dead since they ganged up on him like that, though she can't imagine why. 
His response, they wanted to convince me not to tell anyone what they want, frustrates her, and she makes to leave, but can't bring herself to abandon him in his weakened state. She gets him into a cabin and helps him take his boots off, despite his concerns for her finger-webbing. The text says, There's nothing secret about being a diver, you know. She sat on the edge of his bed, pulled off her red canvas shoes, and wriggled her toes. They were long, but not abnormally so, and they were not appreciably webbed. Radu pushes himself up on one elbow and took her foot in his other hand. Her toenails were like claws, cat claws, tiger claws, retractable and heavy and quite sharp. Orca flexed her foot, and the claws extended. One dimpled the flesh of his hand very gently. Unsure of what to come, Orca asks if she may stay, and Radu is glad for her company. She smells like sea mist, and he wonders if he smells like the forest to her. However, tired as he is, Radu lies in darkness until Orca asks him if he's still awake. She can see him in the dark. We see farther into the infrared and farther into the violet than humans do. Don't you consider yourself still human? My father would say no, she says. What would you say? She hesitates. I'd say we were more different than a race, but less different than a separate species. We're in a transition phase. A transition to what? I don't know, she says, and to Radu, she sounded very sad. Radu comforts her, and she explains that the upcoming meeting is to decide whether or not the divers should continue on their path of accelerated evolution. She doesn't know whether to undergo big changes with her family, or get left behind if she chooses not to. To brighten the mood, they change topics and talk about Twilight. They laugh over the fact that Orca hates boats and blimps because she gets seasick and airsick. Then they sleep. Radu wakes up alone and lonely from jumbled dreams. Using the computer, he sees that Linnea is still away. He takes a long hot shower, contemplating how he's beginning to enjoy some luxuries of space travel life, and not sure he likes himself for feeling that way. When he comes out of the bathroom, he finds Orca there with breakfast. He tells her he's surprised she came back, and she admits that she considered staying away. The problem is that she's already involved. Though Radu wants to keep her uninformed for her own safety, Orca points out that the pilots will assume she already knows everything. Chapter 7 On the shuttle from Earth Station on the moon down to the planet, Radu sees the pilot Ramona Teresa. She doesn't seem aware of anything going on, though he's not sure if that's possible, merely amused to see him with yet another interesting woman, and smug about her original warnings not to spend time with Linnea. He's embarrassed by the interaction. Orca takes off as soon as they land, so, lonely again, Radu goes to find out if Linnea's ship is back yet. It still isn't. He's getting increasingly distressed, but finds he has a message from the restaurant owner, Mark, asking him to come visit ASAP. Radu goes to the restaurant, though it's late at night now. Mark's holographic image welcomes him inside, assuring him he doesn't keep tigers the way some of Linnea's friends do. That gets Radu wondering about Cathal Stafford and her odd threats. Mark directs Radu into his private chambers behind a hidden door, where he keeps a vast collection of beautiful things. Unlike the rumors, Mark in person is not deformed, merely very private. He's actually a handsome middle-aged man, dressed in soft silks. I was extremely anxious to speak with you before you took any action about the pilots, he says. Some people bring me things, others give me information. In response, Radu pulls out the shining Wayuna, placing the gift in front of Mark's panels of switches and buttons. The restaurant owner is pleased with the jewel, though when he picks it up, his hand shakes visibly. When he puts it aside, he returns to business. You've disturbed the pilots rather badly, he says. The whole situation has Radu extremely frustrated. He's angry that the pilots act as if they're better than humans when they still are humans, and everyone treats them the exact same way. 
You're right, Mark says. They're human enough that a few are very incurable gossips, but they're also human enough to be unpredictable when they're in a panic. He goes on to say there's no way around the administrators finding out, either through the grapevine or through anomalies recorded by the ship. Apparently, Mark used to be a pilot. Linnea doesn't know. Very few people know, he says. The old pilots, but not the new ones. I wasn't even a member of the first working group. I was an experiment. Most of the people who knew me before believe I'm dead. Something happened to me in transit, and something happened to you. I thought I might be able to help. Radu is extremely surprised, since he doesn't feel any physical discomfort being near Mark. He listens as Mark explains that his existence suggests that there are humans who can withstand transit naturally, which will make pilots redundant and without the closed society they currently enjoy. They don't want to return to being ordinary people. While Mark isn't surprised that Vasily might threaten to kill Radu over this, even if he wouldn't really get that far, Mark assures Radu he doesn't plan to keep him locked up here. He's mostly curious. So, they start to speculate. Has Radu always had trouble with the anesthetic drugs? No, he's always been an exceptionally good transit sleeper. But when it was time to wake up, he was always the first awake. Mark is very surprised to hear about his dreams. Unique, as far as he knows. They mean his brain is working during transit while other crew members are in a drugged coma. And they've always been positive, nostalgic dreams until now. During the return trip from Nathumalan, they shifted into vivid nightmares of Linnea calling for him. He hasn't had dreams like that since the plague days, when he would dream of people around him dying and then relive the horror when they actually did. Sometimes he dreamed someone got sick and died before they'd even caught the plague. Mark is intrigued by this, especially since Linnea's training trip has lasted a very long time. They move on to discussing what Radu experienced in transit, a flat, gray nothing, where Vasily could sense or see something else. Now Radu doesn't know what to do, unhappy that Mark is urging him to accept his abilities rather than deny them. The pilots might settle down if he doesn't antagonize them. Unfortunately, Mark doesn't hold much sway with them since, though one of the originals, he is a failed pilot who had his flesh and blood heart put back in. I was in a terror. I hit the emergency switch. You know. It took me some time to gather my courage enough to try to go home. It took me so long that the choice was between the terror and starvation. I was too far away from any system to try and reach a world where I could die peacefully. He smiles sadly. And I do believe I would have chosen exile to transit if I'd had the choice. The return was completely different. I can no more describe it than I could the other. I came back in a daze of rapture, but I wasn't a pilot any longer. I wasn't sufficiently freed from normal space-time. Transit changed me. Not quite enough to kill me, but if I flew awake again, I'd die. I would have accepted that fate to return, but of course, they wouldn't permit it. Mark's great unhappiness is that he almost fit the requirements, but not quite, and his role in the grand scheme of things was to help narrow down those requirements for others. Now he's left brain-damaged, though not a vegetable, and he'll do what he can to help Radu. At this point, Mark has exhausted himself and hurries Radu out, telling him to call every day until Mark answers and to stay away from the pilots. They may be human, but scared humans do scary things. Radu leaves the restaurant and runs straight into Orca. She scolds him for not knowing to turn on protective settings on his files so that others can't read his messages and find him as easily as she had. So, Orca shows him how. This and everything else has Radu very spooked, and he grabs her slender hand in fright as someone passes by, releasing it as soon as he realizes what he's doing. He's terrified he broke a bone, only for Orca to latch onto his wrist and, with little effort, squeeze until she cuts off the blood flow. I keep telling you, she says coldly, that I'm not delicate. The webs won't tear, and you'd have to work at it hard to break my fingers. Are we friends? I thought we were starting to be, but you don't even trust what I say. 
Radu apologizes, explaining that many crew members he's met since leaving Twilight have been very thin and frail, and Orca also apologizes for bruising his wrist in her frustration. She takes him outside to the ocean, where she whistles calls one of the cousins, mentioned earlier in the text, a killer whale. She tells him to come to Victoria if he ever needs her, and ask for her family at the harbor. Though fascinated by the enormous creature, as well as Orca's graceful dive into the black water, Radu feels cripplingly lonely watching her return to a whole other world for important family matters. After contemplating his intense loneliness for a while, Radu catches movement out of the corner of his eye and sees Vasily and the other pilots emerge from the shadows. They try to encircle him, corner him, but in a desperate attempt to get away, he dives into the water. Though the quick, cold swim to the ferry dock seemed clear in his mind, the actual frigid temperature and saltiness of the water are nothing like he ever imagined. The pilots don't follow him or shoot at him, and he's left trying to swim as his whole body numbs. Just as he loses consciousness, a huge shape rises up beneath him. Chapter 8 Radu wakes from dreams where, instead of him suffering from the plague, it is Linnea dying from it. When he wakes up and tries to open his sleep box, he's terrified to feel it's made of wood. A real nightmare has come true, and he's been taken for dead and put in a coffin. However, pushing on the wood sends him sideways, falling out of bed. Orca is there, and they are in a room of bunk beds with an underwater porthole. Her black and white whale friend heard him dive into the water and begin to struggle, so they turned back to save him. While the pilots didn't push Radu in, they didn't try to save him either. They're still waiting for him, so Orca brought him into the diver's quarters where they can't go. Feeling incredibly guilty, Radu finally explains everything to Orca, and she's stunned to hear it all, especially that he was awake during transit. She encourages him to call Mark and steps out. Given how ill Mark looked last night, Radu doesn't think he'll answer yet, but is surprised when he does. However, it's not really Mark, but a computer analog. It tells him what even Mark doesn't know yet. Linnea's teacher Mikala's ship has been declared lost since it's two weeks late. The text says, Radu refused to be forced to believe Linnea was gone. He shut out the screen's decorative patterns. Linnea was too real to be lost. He had not yet even managed to convince himself they could never be lovers again, though he knew it was impossible. He would never convince himself she was lost, dead. He would never try. He thought, she was in danger, and I knew it. I woke up in transit because I knew it. Then he thought, it's like the hallucinations back on Twilight. Maybe they weren't hallucinations. Maybe Mark was right. And finally, the way Atna was right. He was wrong in detail, but he was right all the same. After the call ends, Orca returns and comforts him, saying she liked Linnea when she met her as a crew member. Radu tells her more about his dreams about Linnea needing help, how Atna's visions were right that something would happen in transit. He recalls the plague, how he would dream of his friends and family needing help, how as a child he would try to warn people. Instead of learning to use this gift, he instead filed it away and behaved towards Atna the same way others had acted towards him. Orca tries to ease him into grief, but Radu refuses to believe Linnea is dead. No lost ship has ever been found, so no one really knows what happens to them. They can't be communicated with. However, he knew Linnea needed him, so there is some sort of connection. Radu decides to confront the pilots and try to make them help him. He and Orca hug goodbye, as crew members do, and he leaves. The pilots waiting for him, Vasily and another called Chase, are taken aback by the fact Radu came to them. You wouldn't tell me what you wanted of me, he says, so I'll say what I want of you. Though Vasily is angry and not at all willing to listen, the other pilot shuts him down. We've screwed this up badly enough already, she says, and leads them away. 
In her room, Orca speaks to her cousin through the porthole speaker using middle speech. Quote, the language was denser than standard speech, but filmy and unsubstantial compared to true speech. Unquote. The killer whale cousins are smarter than humans, though not as smart as the bigger whales that Orca finds intimidating. The text says, The differences between whales and human beings, which Orca's brother hardly noticed, seemed so enormous to Orca that she found it marvelous that the two species could communicate at all. There were great gaps in understanding. Humans could not understand the whale's acceptance of events. Whales could not comprehend anger or hatred, or the even more alien emotions of ambition or fear. They had concepts so far beyond human understanding that even the descriptions made no sense, even in true speech. Orca's brother knew what they meant, but he had tried to explain them to her, both in the water and in the air, and failed every time. Her cousin outside is sad to hear Orca is not coming home yet, too concerned with Radu's situation. Quote, in the sea, intelligent beings did not disappear from hearing unless they died, unquote. The oceans of Earth are all connected, and whale song echoes across the globe, but not onto the land or into space. Though enormous whales are incapable of understanding true danger, seeing all potentialities as opportunities, Orca does her best to explain that she has someone who needs protecting. There is no way to truly explain, but Orca's cousin accepts that she must go places she doesn't want to. What could be better than playing in the sea? Running out, Orca catches up with Radu and the pilots, joining them in the elevator. Vasily is unhappy to see her, but Chase accepts it, ushering them to the more secure pilots' quarters to talk. A huge group of them has gathered there, including Ramona Teresa. There's a bit of a back and forth that reveals that pilots hadn't meant to scare Radu quite as badly as they had, not getting to him as fast as the whale had, and understood now that he had felt very cornered. The pilots also reluctantly accept the diver's presence since Orca has saved Radu from them twice. Now the real problem is brought up, Linnea and Mikala's missing ship. The idea that Radu might be able to find it creates an uproar, but eventually the pilots are intrigued and listen to his story, as well as ask detailed questions. Though Ramona Teresa is aware Radu and Linnea were lovers, not just acquaintances, she mostly watches from the side. The conversation evolves into a discussion around the harm or benefit posed to the pilots by Radu's abilities. After being surrounded by pilots for so long, Radu is pushed to breaking point and nearly crying from frustration and flees to another part of the lounge. Orca goes to him. He can't stop thinking about the poison pills given to pilots in case they're stuck somewhere. Linnea has been missing for two weeks. How long will she wait to take the pills? Will the fear of starvation and asphyxiation push her over the edge? How long did those two weeks feel in transit? Angry, Radu shouts at the pilots. How long did they think Linnea will, will wait? Ramona Teresa comes over, making it clear that they will work with Radu to try and find Linnea. However, she believes Linnea's lack of patience in regards to adjusting her new body as well as to jumping into bed with Radu put her in this situation. And her failed training flight means her pilot surgery will be reversed when she returns home. The transition back to being a normal human being might do her in anyway. Nevertheless, moving much faster than the administrators would, they will send out a rescue mission. Chapter 9 Ramona Teresa uses her seniority to get them a ship. She, Vasily, Orca, and Radu will go, using some exploration equipment Vasily acquired from a friend. Though Radu doesn't like being around Vasily, he is the best pilot of them all. The computer's AI is shut off, and Orca is sent to sleep so they can jump into transit before someone can come after them. Radu goes with her to the sleep room to give her the customary hug, which is more lingering than before as Orca runs her hands across his back. It sets his heart pounding. Before she takes the anesthetic, she asks him what transit is like since he's not a pilot and can tell her. At first, Radu just laughs, which offends her, 
but he's quick to assure her that the reason he can't tell is that he doesn't seem to experience the same thing as the pilots. Who knows with pilots, she mutters. The phrase is repeated throughout the book. According to the computer log, Radu is also asleep in a box. In reality, he stands in front of a viewport, watching the universe shift from black to gray with no other detectable change. A vastly different experience than the pilots, who must concentrate on their biocontrol to survive. He finds them in the control room, breathing through oxygen masks. They will follow the route Mikala took with Linnea, then perhaps Radu will take over, though he doesn't have a clear plan. Maybe Linnea just kept going. I keep trying to make you understand how this works, Vasily says, so angrily that he has to stop immediately and take another isolated breath. You're all right if you know your starting point and your destination, or your start and a familiar route. You can go a little way beyond, but not indefinitely without coming out and taking a look, because you get lost. As he turns his back, Ramona Teresa tells Radu he should try to get to sleep, since the last time he sensed anything about Linnea, it was a dream. And he goes to the lounge to try that, but he can't. He starts cooking food for everyone instead, looking out the viewport. Quote, His description to Orca had been slightly inaccurate. Fog, indeed, but not a great depth to it. It had no depth. One did not so much look into it as at it. It had neither form nor texture, and only his imagination gave it the bright sparkles at the edge of his vision. Unquote. Staring at the fog quiets Radu's mind, and he becomes so sleepy that he doesn't even make it to the couch, simply lying down on the floor to sleep. He finds himself in a flat world of featureless ground and falling snow. He can't see ahead, and he can't see where he's been. Radu can only walk and know that he has some sense of what he's doing, though he can't see it. He knows there are other paths around him, other dimensions beyond third, fourth, and fifth, that he can step over to and continue along. He fights through antisensory hallucinations, piling snow, and fatigue. On the seventh path, he clearly hears Linnea's voice. Radu wakes up properly. He was out for about five hours, the same length of time he was in the dream. The pilots have arrived, saying he called out to them. It's almost time for them to choose a new route or go back to the beginning. He tells them to just keep going, and, when Vasily asks how far, Radu just shrugs. No one knows how to answer questions like that in transit. Chapter 10 Stopping and stumbling, Radu explains his dream as best he can, though the images and actions come out garbled in speech. Ramona Teresa is a bit shaken, deducing that the directions Radu perceived were the six known dimensions and the seventh hypothetical one. Though Vasily wants to dismiss it, Ramona knows better. The reason a seventh dimension is so important is that it will basically make time and distance non-factors in space exploration. Those who can perceive it could also follow astral bodies like quasars to their origin, discovering limitless scientific truths. Radu is too exhausted to really care at the moment. While Vasily sulks, Ramona explains further. What you just described was a fair representation of the plan for a first training flight, in which the teacher takes the new pilot along the intersection of the hyperplane with one dimension at a time. She took a breath. First you orient the new pilot with the normal three, then you introduce fourth, and fifth, and sixth if they can perceive them. She paused to let that sink in. As far as I can tell, assuming the usual progression and relating your perception of time to mine of distance, you've given an accurate tracing of the path we've been following. After some more back and forth, it seems like Radu's strong sense of time allows him to perform in transit similarly, or better, to the pilots, who only perceive distance through their visual understanding of transit. Again, Vasily is angry that any of this could be the case, but he agrees to at least listen and drive the ship. 
though he leaves to be by himself for a while before he has to. As they continue on, Ramona continues to give Radu the basics of piloting. She compares it to how some people can prove mathematical theorems while skipping a dozen steps, making their notes unreadable, performing math like it's an art form. Vasily is talented in this way, visualizing paths and transit more efficiently than others. Radu feels that he is nothing like that, and is haunted by the fact he can't see what they see. I believe the question is not why you don't perceive it, but why we do, which no one has ever explained, Ramona says. When Vasily rejoins them, he's tempted to return to normal space to get their bearings, but Radu insists they haven't got much further to go, even if they can't perceive that aspect of things the way he can. In compromise, Radu lets Vasily take them out of transit to create a checkpoint. When the ship returns to normal space, Radu is stunned to look out the viewport and see the entire Milky Way galaxy floating in the darkness. He tells Vasily to drive, almost starting a fight in the process. Do you want me to plan to give you a countdown? He asks, unable to give an exact time. Vasily is extremely angry at the suggestion, and Ramona gets him to calm down. While useful, Radu's sense of time is in direct violation of the biocontrol rhythm the pilots live by, outside of time. To give them a break, Radu leaves. He's been around the pilots too long as well, everything from small sounds of the ship to the texture of the couch. This turns into a full-blown panic attack, and he struggles to breathe normally, using all the techniques he knows. He ends up doing a headstand to get the blood where he wants it, only to collapse into giggles on the floor when the pilots find him like that. While he feels ready to go again, Ramona is worried, disturbed that he's reacting to the pilots the way they react to ordinary people. If anything happens to him, neither of them can get close enough to help, nor can they wake Orca in transit to do it. However, she agrees with Radu that it's beginning to feel like they'll really find Linnea and Mikala. Vasily returns the ship to transit and, despite not wanting to perceive time, he's getting impatient. Radu starts a countdown privately in his mind when suddenly Vasily says he has to adjust course around an anomaly. In the hopes of seeing something in the gray, not just in the corners of his eyes, Radu has been staring into transit space along with the pilots and, quote, one of the bright hallucinations glimmered, not at the edge of his vision, but in the center, and this time it remained. He blinked, expecting it to vanish like the others. Instead, it widened, and at the same time, its substance coalesced, the colors intensifying and thickening, intertwining and parting like the threads of a tapestry." Unquote. When Vasily tries to turn away, Radu knocks him aside and drives the ship straight into the bubble of Aurora. Quote, the ship passed into the Aurora, and the Aurora passed into the ship. Through dimensions Radu had imagined but could not describe, the color rained upon him and passed through his skin and flesh and bones. He shivered as it touched him. He felt that he could reach out and sweep the universe up in his arms, from its beginning to its end. For that moment, he understood what pilots knew about transit." Unquote. Vasily all but attacks Radu, demanding to know what he saw, but soon their attention is taken by the other transit ship in the distance. Ramona drives while Vasily curses and Radu tries to get used to seeing the multitude of shadowed images layered over everything around him. When the ships are docked together, Radu hurries after Ramona to the airlock. First, Radu finds the crew in the sleep room alive in their boxes. Then, they find Mikala's dead body in the lounge, decaying to dust in Radu's fractured vision. He used this moment to try and deal with this new vision. He used just one of the many layers, quote, like drawing a three-dimensional cube onto a two-dimensional sheet of paper, something like changing the focus of his eyes from very far to very near, unquote. It helps, but he doubts he will ever see the world the same way again. 
Leaving Ramona Teresa to grieve for her friend, Radu finds Linnea slumped over a pilot chair in the control room. She wakes from sleeping and is completely shocked to see him, convinced she's dreaming. They laugh and giggle for the joy of success, to find and to be found and embrace despite any dangers. Radu explains to her how he got there, though she's surprised to find out that the ship has already been declared lost, when it seems like not much time has passed. Linnea had only sat down to think after Mikala's passing, and dozed off. The pair return to the lounge, where Ramona Teresa kneels beside her longtime lover's body. Like Radu, she came here to find someone important to her. She and Radu are more similar than she ever let on. While he stands to the side, Linnea goes to Ramona, telling her how happy Mikala had been to find the seventh dimension. Tragically, he had some sort of seizure as soon as they went in, and Linnea was left alone without anyone to teach her how to get home. As Linnea moves Ramona away from the body, Vasily arrives on the ship, seething. He doesn't believe them that they're in the seventh dimension. It seems he cannot see it or feel the difference. Linnea stays calm and hits the controls for the two ships to drop out of transit. Outside, there are unfamiliar stars that Radu slowly realizes are actually entire galactic clusters. They have come so far, it might as well be the end of the universe. While Vasily grapples with this, Linnea is serene and ecstatic, while Radu watches her in awe. She is a true pilot now, another breed of human. For a moment she touches his cheek, and he kisses her hand, then they part. Linnea rotates the ship for a different view. In one direction they see galaxies, and in another, nothing. The text says, Interstellar space is deep black, touched richly with stars. Even the featureless shadows of hard vacuum could not match the complete absence of light that faced Radu now. He tried to open out the darkness, to let images expand to include a future or a past, but there was nothing there. No stars, no galaxies, no light or heat or radiation. Nothing was there, and nothing ever had been there. He was looking into a place that did not yet exist and never would exist. The universe, still expanding, would engulf it, and it never would have been. The ship turns until it's facing the known universe again, and Linnea lets it sit that way. Ramona looks tired while Vasily is distraught. It confuses Linnea that Vasily can't see or feel the seventh dimension. It isn't that simple, Ramona says. All pilots can see fourth, but only half of us can perceive fifth, and half of those, sixths. As for seventh, I had my chance, and Vasily had his when Radu brought us here. But we were oblivious to what he sensed, and to what you understand. Once again, Linnea thanks them, especially Radu. She knows how difficult it must have been to get the pilots to help him come to find her, to save her from a lifetime of struggling back to known space. The short distance between them is painful, but they have to focus on going home now. Chapter 11 Orca awakens on her own, stiff and groggy, only seeing Radu when she's already up and finds him hurrying to meet her down the corridor. They're both relieved the other is okay, especially Orca, since Radu was the mission's guiding star, and she follows him to the control room to witness the incredible sight of the edge of the universe. She presses herself against the viewport, bathing in the light of galaxies. Radu comes to embrace her as she takes in the wonder of where they are, overcome with emotion that they actually made it through the seventh dimension. Though Orca listens to what happened while she was asleep, she's completely captivated by what she sees outside. Radu, what's on the other side? she asks. Nothing, he says. Nothing, she repeats. Nothing, he confirms. Darkness. You can't even call it that. More than an absence of light. Unable to explain any better, and not ready to see it again, Radu goes to make lunch for everyone. They part, a little uncertain how to act with each other with Linnea's presence looming large. 
While he cooks, Radu shivers as the petals of dimension keep trying to unfold before his eyes. Elsewhere, Orca witnesses the abyss as Linnea turns the ship for her. While she can't get enough of the sight, Vasily is greatly disturbed by it, even though his passion was always exploration. He leaves, and Orca asks Linnea what's out there. I tried to figure it out, she says, but beyond where we are, the transit equations haven't any solutions. We've come just about as far as we can. She busies herself for a while to let Orca stare into the nothingness, but eventually she can't stand it either. Orca, quote, felt both enlarged and diminished by what she had seen, and all she knew for certain was that she wanted to explore it until she understood its secrets. Now she knew how her brother felt when he dove into the sea until its depths sliced away all the sunlight. She knew why he loved it and why he would never leave, unquote. Meanwhile, Radu wonders what Orca thought of the view, and he feels certain a diver like her won't feel surprised or disturbed like the others. As he cooks to keep busy while accepting his new state of being, Orca does the same by going to check the damaged engines. When lunch is ready, the pilots gather, though Vasily storms off like a child at the smell of it. The rest of them have a quiet meal, excusing themselves one after the other to grapple with what they've experienced today, leaving just Radu and Linnea alone. They both understand why the others left. I'm surprised I feel as normal as I do, Radu says. I feel better than normal, Linnea admits. I'm sorry about me, Kala. I'm sorry Vasily is disappointed, but I can't help it. I feel wonderful. At the same time, Orca discovers Ramona Teresa in the dark control room. She uses her superior vision to get a better look, curious about how pilots lack the consistent heartbeat of ordinary humans she would normally be able to see. Orca goes in to offer her condolences, then asks if Ramona would turn the ship around again for her to look into the abyss. As she stares into it, Ramona asks what she sees, but Orca would only be able to describe something of it in the underwater language. I don't have any words you can understand, she says. For a moment, Ramona is outraged. Then she laughs. I deserve that, she says. Oh, I do deserve that. I and all the other pilots. Radu comes in and joins Orca looking out over the edge. In the other ship where Linnea has gone, she holds back the urge to override the turning of the linked ships towards the darkness, forcing herself to look instead. It scared her in a different way than her first spaceflight or her chest surgery had. She gets to thinking about relativity, about how much time has passed back on Earth, so she goes to find Radu for a quick answer. Can you still tell what time it is back on Earth? She asks him when she finds him with Orca. Of course, he says, pausing. Oh, I see. You're right. We probably shouldn't stay here too much longer. He determines that this time spent by the Abyss has taken up about eight days in Earth time. The last thing they want is to accidentally return years in the future. While everyone else prepares to leave, Orca snaps out of her trance to object. We came all this way just to turn around and go back? She asks. Unfortunately for her, this is not an exploration mission, merely a rescue. She leaves as if to get ready for transit, but disappears. Radu tells everyone to hold on and goes to find her following breadcrumbs that lead him to donning a spacesuit and going out into the blackness of space. He finds Orca there, singing into the abyss. Quote, The sound made him shiver. It spoke of the whole universe behind him and of something unknown, perhaps unknowable, before him. Unquote. She floats out there, untethered, and Radu has to grab her. Her song is too intimate, too invasive. Quote, she had a strange, lost, searching look in her eyes that frightened him, because he had only seen that look before in the eyes of people who knew they were going to die." Unquote. She stops singing and allows him to bring her back to the ship. Back on board, he scolds her, but Orca points out that she will probably never get to come out here again. 
All crew members are on waiting lists for exploration missions of much less interest and import than this one. Though Radu may be forced back here, there's almost no chance she would get to come, despite the need she feels to get closer. Orca goes to the sleep room, but has become suspicious that everything she's been told is a lie, that nothing will happen to her during transit. However, Radu thinks of brain-damaged Mark and assures her that although he is immune for some reason, the dangers are very real. Frustrated, she asks if he'll at least share the secret of transit, but he honestly tells her that he has no words to describe it or even help himself remember it. There are words for it, she says, but not your words. Finally, Orca goes into the sleep box after a tight hug. Radu watches over her, envious, before returning to Linnea's ship. He tells her they can leave now, and Linnea starts the process. Seniority is out the window now that, of the three pilots, she's the only one who can perceive the seventh dimension and drive the two ships home. In what was Mikala's seat, Radu embraces the flood of sensations as they make the transition. However, it's startling to look over at Linnea. Unlike Mikala, whose possibilities had ended, Linnea's have just begun and blossom around her. He asks her what she's doing, and she explains the tricky process of returning to where Mikala passed away so they don't shoot to the other end of the universe. She has to do it alone since Vasily's pride is too hurt. He's used to being the best, Radu says. Then you came along and do something he can't. Even worse, I came along, a crew member. Linnea admonishes him for putting himself down like that. She can see how extraordinary his accomplishment is because it saved her life. For a moment, they almost touch hands, but think better of it. Instead, they talk about how, now that they're out of the seventh dimension, Radu can only see flat gray again. He looks over to see Linnea staring at him, and she shrugs, saying she was checking if he could read her thoughts, and found her that way. However he did it, she insists it was necessary. If she had found her way back within a year, a horrific amount of time would have passed back on Earth. Radu would have been long dead by the time she made it. The thought of living his life believing Linnea died lost in transit is also a terrifying thought. They've both changed. Linnea reaches out and actually touches him, feeling his pulse, but the connection is like an electric shock to their bodies. They're more incompatible than they used to be, despite the changes. In good time, Linnea pilots the ships back to Earth Station on the moon with accuracy akin to Vasily's. She wishes she could go back into the seventh dimension and escape the flatness of normal space, but she resists the urge. There's a lot of excitement on the radio about her return, while normal docking procedures take place. Linnea continues to take charge of the ships while the senior pilots are elsewhere. Ramona contacts Mikala's family, and Vasily remains in his cabin. They are welcomed home by Dr. Vandegraaff, Linnea's surgeon, who is also an administrator. However, Ramona Teresa wins the right to bring Linnea to meet with the other pilots before the administrators get to interview her. Chapter 12 Before anything else, Ramona Teresa leads Linnea and Orca into their own private recording rooms to try and describe their experiences. There are various types of machines, along with art supplies. Linnea starts and stops, unable to find the words, while Orca knows that only the underwater language can capture what she saw in the abyss. Meanwhile, Radu is taken to yet another recording room, hearing the last snippets of conversation between the senior pilot and the doctor as the door closes. Quote, He sat down, picked up a pencil, chewed on its end, and scrawled a few disconnected words in his unpracticed handwriting. Trees after rain, crystals, the texture of fish swimming upstream, then he rubbed out what he had written, unquote. Radu knocks to be let out and apologizes for having nothing to say. He's surprised by Ramona's understanding. How can I be angry at you for not being able to do something I couldn't do myself, she asks. 
yours is hardly a unique reaction. Dr. Vandergraaff takes Radu away for 12 grueling hours of naked testing. He now fully understands why Linnea escaped the hospital. He feels like the doctors are studying him as some sort of specimen, as strange as the humans who chose to transform their bodies for a life beyond civilization, be it underwater, by molten lakes, or in the vacuum of space. He envies their freedom. When he's left alone, Radu sits still so as not to give the cameras any satisfaction and ponders whether they can read his thoughts as well. He doesn't believe in telepathy, but something led him to Linnea. Something told Atna there was trouble coming. He does some hard thinking. Eventually, Dr. Vandergraaff comes in for an interrogation, not bothering to return his clothes since more tests are coming. She shuts down his requests to be dressed to leave, stating that until they understand his disability or ability, he is stuck here. He can't just stay on Earth Station without a work permit. This isn't a backwater colony. Plus, the doctor-slash-administrator holds control over his crew contract. Feeling very bare, Radu says, You don't understand that it isn't necessary to close me in on all sides until I cannot move or see or breathe. I'm as anxious as you to understand what happened to me. It did happen to me, but no one will say a word to me about what you have discovered. This takes some of the wind out of the doctor's sails. She admits they just don't know. He's entirely unique, yet physically the same as any ordinary human who ever died trying to go through transit awake. I'm not opposed to cooperating with you, Radu says, but I want to know the purpose of what you're doing. I'm tired, and I'm tired of being treated as if I'm not even here. The doctor looks at him a little more clearly and apologizes. This whole thing has sent everyone into confusion. She says she will let him have his clothes and will make sure the technicians explain the procedures before performing them. The final scan of the day looks at his nervous system and compares it to the average. How often do you find differences? Radu asks. Oh, always, the technician says cheerfully. I've never seen anybody who matched the average exactly, but the differences can tell a lot. Clothed, Radu sits through a computerized set of questions that pick apart his life going all the way back to the plague on Twilight. He's so exhausted he just answers. However, Dr. Vandergraaff shuts off the computer to finish the questions herself. She asks about his childhood, unexceptional, and the plague. It surprises her that Radu met Linnea back then, when she was part of the emergency ship's crew. After that, his life changed, because he survived the plague while his whole family died. Reluctantly, Radu tells the doctor about his hallucinations and dreams about people dying before it happened. Do you happen to know the plague's incubation period? She asks. It's about six weeks, he says. What has that got to do with anything? Oh, probably nothing at all. The doctor's eyes go out of focus and Radu can tell she's accessing information using an advanced inner system. He finds the idea of being biologically linked to a vast pool of data via a computer chip revolting, but waits patiently for her to finish. Dr. Vandergraaff then tells him an incredible thing. The records show Radu Dracul was the only person on his planet to contract the disease and survive. She takes him to meet with the others, including Ramona and Vasily. Radu is mainly glad to see Orca, since Linnea feels more part of the system of secrecy now. And they are led through private administrator passages to a shuttle that will return them to Earth from the moon. However, Orca refuses. The U.S. Navy landing port where they plan to go is off-limits to a diver, as her people in the government have never formally come to a peaceful set of terms. She could be arrested on suspicion of spying, or distrusted by her own people for accepting to go there. Let me explain this to you in terms you may understand, Doctor, Orca says. Not landing in the United States is in my contract. Radu can't help himself. He dissolves into laughter. 
Everyone looks at him in outrage, but he can't stop. Doctor, how can you argue with her? He giggles. That's exactly the threat you've been holding over me. Understanding, Orca also laughs. Ramona Teresa calms the doctor, and they decide to land at Northwest, the spaceport Orca and the others are most familiar with. They board a very luxurious shuttle with leather seats reserved for people with even more VIP status than pilots. Vasily is especially offended to find out such people exist. Radu and Orca make themselves comfortable, commenting on how hard the day was. She was also put through extensive testing. They discovered I'm not quite human, she laughs. I don't think any of the techs ever had a diver to work on before. One of them was as nervous as a barracuda. He must be one of those nuts who believes they can catch the carrier virus. She bared her prominent canine teeth, then giggles. Just like an old movie, zap, transformed into a werefish. Something about her statements gets Radu thinking, but he doesn't feel safe sharing his thoughts here. Orca says she can take him somewhere private when they get out of here. Chapter 13 When the ship touches down, it is surrounded by press reporters and paparazzi. News of the lost ship that came home has gotten around. There's only one way through, so Ramona Teresa leads the group out of the ship to give the crowd what they're asking for. Linnea Trevelyan has done what the pilots have hoped to do since there were pilots, she says. On her first training flight, she discovered the transit dimension which will open the universe beyond our galaxy. This statement shifts everyone's focus to the discovery and away from the ship, mostly wanting to know how Linnea had done it without paying attention to Radu. Quote, he wondered if Ramona Teresa, understanding that Linnea was a hero while Radu was a freak, had planned it this way. He suspected that she had, and he was most grateful to her. Unquote. All in one moment, Orca runs down the ramp through the crowd, and Linnea retreats back into the ship. Radu goes to Linnea, but she can't bear to have him nearby, especially not after being surrounded by so many ordinary people. He calls for Vasily to help instead, who does so with a few rude words to Radu. To Ramona, Radu says, you were right all along. With everyone distracted, he plunges into the crowd after Orca. Elsewhere, Mark, the ex-pilot restaurant owner, has just recovered from his fit and is now able to see what he missed, thinking to himself that he can no longer shut himself off from the world as much as he has. His computer analog gives him the details. The story is fascinating, and he's very interested in a diver like Orca. He also knows what sort of media frenzy must be going on, and decides the time has come. As his restaurant is very close to the spaceport, Mark leaves for the first time in years and hobbles over to watch the impromptu press conference. Being at a distance, Mark notices a person in the crowd like no one else, a young, naked diver dripping wet. Suddenly, he's distracted by Linnea, who stops mid-sentence to stumble backwards. Mark is worried and rushes forward, but so does everyone else, and his frail body is knocked around and he loses his walking stick. He's nearly trampled, but the diver boy grabs him and drags him free from the crowd, even retrieving the cane. The boy introduces himself as Mark Harris. Orca appears moments later, shocked to see her brother on land among the humans and happy to see him. A killer whale whistles from the waves. Her happiness is interrupted by an inner eye message from Dr. Vandegraaff telling her to stay put and keep Radu there too if she finds him. Despite this warning, Orca tells her brother and Mark, the older man she doesn't know, that she'll be right back and dives into the ocean. Underwater, Orca can finally come close to communicating what she saw in the abyss at the end of the universe, speaking the three-dimensional language with the killer whales. The closest to vacuum of space she can get is the phrase for silence, but it's good enough, though she doesn't think the whales will understand her desire to go back to it. On the contrary, they tell her she must go back, and then return to tell them more. 
She agrees to attend her family's big meeting, but knows that something besides accelerated evolution is calling to her. At the same time, Radu has made it to Mark's restaurant, but gets no response. So, in a moment of extreme uncertainty, he heads to Cathel Stafford's apartment. One of her usual parties is in full swing, but she's not drunk the way her guests are, and gets serious as soon as she sees him. You took your time, she says coldly. What do you want? He takes her aside and explains he wants to use her blimp. Clearly, Cathel feels she owes him more than that, much as she hates it. So Radu pushes forward and requests that she lie to anyone who comes asking where he went. She asks what he's running from, but he stubbornly says that she made the rules to this stupid debt, the rule being she owes him, so he doesn't have to say. Cathel tells him he's learning the ways of Earth now, and her eyes flicker as she makes a call. What are you doing? Radu asks. Calling a pilot, of course, she says. The last thing I want is a pilot, he snaps. A blimp pilot, she says, sort of amused. Radu states he can drive the blimp himself and leaves, having satisfied the rich woman's bizarre need to settle her debt and finds the blimp at the airfield. It's a shining golden thing on a planet he wasn't born on, but Radu manages to get it launched and flying. Back at the spaceport dock, Mark has a fascinating conversation with the diver boy while the crowd disperses, then looks up when Dr. Vandergraaff comes looking for Orca. She's shocked to see Mark, it's been many years. Accepting a place on the bench they've found to wait for Orca to finish her swim, the doctor has a brief conversation with the diver boy while Mark tries to figure out what she wants with Radu. Eventually, an assistant brings her a package containing clothes for the naked boy. Mark helps him put on his very first pair of jeans. Orca returns, giddy from her conversation with the whales, and is amused to see her brother clothed. While Dr. Vandergraaff is annoyed, Mark is envious of her freedom in the water. The doctor doesn't really believe Orca doesn't know where Radu is. Orca doesn't really care, since she no longer feels so threatened by the administration. The group is joined by the pilots now that the crowd is gone, so she introduces them to her brother. Again, the boy introduces himself as Mark Harris. His sister laughs, delighted that he's picked a name to be called on land. It's the same as the main character from the TV show, The Man from Atlantis. Linnea and Mark meet in person for the first time, then Dr. Vandergraaff starts shepherding them all away. Orca's brother insists on coming since she can't come home yet, and the doctor begrudgingly allows him, and Mark, to come. She's still angry that no one knows where Radu went. No one has any idea, although Linnea mentions that the only other person on Earth he knows is Cathal Stafford. Orca is impressed with her brother. He's more worldly than she realized, having caught on that she might not be able to go home at will. She's glad to have him with her. Before heading inside where she's sure she'll be cut off from messages, Orca checks her general mail one more time and sees an unsigned note. I accept your offer. Clearly, Radu took her advice not to leave an obvious paper trail. As the doors are about to shut, Orca looks at her brother and says, Let's go home. Without hesitation, the two of them sprint back to the edge of the dock and dive. Chapter 14 Dr. Vandergraaff is disgusted and doesn't even try to get the divers back, simply leading everyone inside as planned. They come to a luxurious lounge for administrators and VIPs. Linnea and Ramona Teresa pour themselves drinks while Vasily sulks, and the doctor leaves to do some investigating. She returns to say that Radu hasn't left a paper trail, and Cathel Stafford barely remembers having met him. Linnea thinks that's a little odd. Cathel remembers everybody. I don't think you need to be so anxious about Radu, she says. He's done this before, gone off alone. He just wants time to think. He'll be back. The doctor is far from convinced, but Linnea points out that a few hours won't change how long it will take to turn him into a pilot. Radu Dracul cannot be a pilot, Ramona Teresa says. Though Radu perceives the dimensions necessary, he's like a blind man unable to navigate them fully. 
His perceptions are too different from a pilot's. However, he was able to find Linnea, and the administrators need to know if the act can be duplicated, though he may not be able to find anyone but Linnea, someone he's felt a connection to ever since the time of the plague, when he first met her. It's hard to say if the illness knocked him into something a little different from an ordinary human, but what's clear is that his connection to the seventh dimension means he can sense things about Linnea as if she was beside him and not across the universe. Linnea moves through several stages of horror, first thinking Dr. Vandergraaff wants to dissect Radu's brain, then realizing that in the hopes of transmitting his skill to someone, the plague will be regenerated. It will kill nearly everyone it touches, but in the same way people volunteer to have their hearts cut out to become pilots, they will volunteer to be infected. Mark chimes in that he would take the risk if it meant seeing space and transit again. First, we'll have to study Radu to see what made him capable of surviving, to find a set of requirements like they did for the pilots. And then unvaccinated volunteers will be sent to Twilight and wait till they contract the plague, the source of which was never discovered. Privately, Mark suspects that Orca and her brother's sudden escape into the ocean might be connected to Radu's disappearance. When the time comes for everyone to sleep, he heads home alone and checks his messages. He was in such a hurry to see Linnea and Radu at the spaceport that he forgot to turn on the computer analog, and due to his brain damage, he's never had a message chip installed. Mark regrets the fact that Radu probably came looking for him, but is glad that in all likelihood, Cathal Stafford got him what he needed. Out in the ocean, Orca contacts her mother to let her know she and her brother are headed home, and that a friend of hers is headed there too. Are you feeling revolutionary? She asks. Your father, always, her mother replies. Me, if necessary. Up in the blimp, Radu is trying to remember the last time he properly slept. It had been when Orca stayed with him overnight before launching the rescue mission. Turning on the autopilot, he sleeps. Back at the spaceport, Linnea gets up to see what the day will bring. Ramona Teresa hugs her goodbye as she leaves to see Mikala's family. Then Linnea sits down to coffee with an exhausted Dr. Vandergraaff. There's still no sign of Radu, though the doctor is beginning to suspect that he's gone to be with the divers. That could lead to a very dicey political situation. Vasily comes out and tells them he's headed to Nathumalan to meet with pilot Atna. Though he completely dismissed his vision before, Vasily needs to know if there's any correlation between them and Radu's newfound abilities. His pride as the best pilot has been deeply wounded by rookie Linnea's ability to see into seventh, and he needs to know if it can be knocked into him as well. Dr. Vandergraaff will allow both Linnea and Vasily to go and find out. After sleeping an entire day into the next night, Radu arrives in the city of Victoria where Orca told him to go. He's kept the radio off for fear that Cathal might have betrayed him to the authorities anyway. Landing the blimp on his own is nearly impossible, but a woman down below, a diver, helps guide him. She introduces herself as Wolf, saying that Orca sent a description of him using the underwater language that no one can understand over the radios. Wolf is Orca's mother, and Radu explains everything that has happened on their way out of the city towards the diver's home of Harmony. The divers will help a friend of the community, even if doing so risks human attack, especially if they can help prevent the administrators from infecting people with the Twilight Plague. Radu fled because he figured out what Dr. Vandergraaff and the others were planning. Back at the spaceport, Linnea feels fairly certain that the administrators are letting her and Vasily go on an exploration flight through the seventh dimension to trick Radu into thinking she's in danger. However, she feels pretty sure that she might be able to warn him. Besides, she's desperate to go back into transit. Having arrived at Harmony, Radu and Wolf meet up with Orca and the others. It feels amazing to be with people he feels he can trust. He keeps trying to apologize to Orca for involving the divers, but she won't hear of it. Tonight is important, so everyone else disperses while she shows him around. 
It feels good to walk the pine trees and the hills up to the longhouse where the divers' labs and sleeping rooms are. Inside, Radu feels at home and looks out the window at the ocean, where he sees not only killer whales, but an unimaginably huge creature. Orca calls it a blue whale. They're open ocean beings. They never come into straits or bays, she explains. But a representative came for our transition meeting. There are only a few of them left. Being near them, talking to them, it's like being at the center of the universe. It's terrifying, but they can't understand that. Radu is fascinated, not at all wanting to sleep, so Orca takes him to the meeting with her. A flight of stairs inside the longhouse leads down a tunnel to the beach, and at the bottom, Orca gives him a wetsuit so the ocean water won't freeze him. They swim out into the bay. The text says, Listening was extraordinary. He could see very little, despite the clear water and the face mask that permitted him to open his eyes beneath the surface. But the sounds... He was surrounded by them, engulfed and inundated, penetrated, long, leisurely sounds that formed a background to it all. Trains of clicks and whistles that started below his hearing range, sailed up through it like a rocket, and passed far beyond. Moans and sighs and laughter. At times he felt he was at the focus of a wave of sound, as if one of Orca's cousins, or even one of the other larger whales, were looking him over, sounding him out. Radu hung in the water, just beneath the surface, breathing through the snorkel and trying to make out the forms and shapes around him. Orca waited long enough to be certain he was comfortable, then swam to join the others. But now and again a diver passed Radu and touched him reassuringly, or waved. A few times one of the killer whales glided underneath him, and one let its fluke curve up and stroke him from chest to toes. The touch was unbelievably gentle. Nothing in his life before, not his first trip into space, twilight spinning slow and graceful above him, not Earth station, not even the moment of transition into seventh, had affected him like this. He felt calm and enchanted and in the midst of a magic night. Despite the beauty of what he's witnessing, Radu knows better than to join the divers in their dance with the whales, as he's only a guest. His privilege comes in the form of the blue whale that moves its huge form so its eye is parallel with him. It blinks as if to give permission, and Radu touches the soft, smooth, warm skin. When its song for him ends, it moves away, the rush of water pushing him gently to the side. Quote, Now he knew how Orca had felt, confronting the edge. He understood why she had left the ship. He knew how Vasily and Linnea felt in transit. He knew what it was like to meet an alien. Unquote. He heads back to shore to escape the meeting he cannot join, and Orca swims alongside him. She talked to you, she says in awe. I guess she did, but I couldn't understand, Radu says. It doesn't matter, Orca insists. You might not have understood her even if you could understand true speech, but the Blues hardly ever speak to divers. Radu, they've never adopted any of us as their family. They climb up on the dock and stand in the chill air. Though lonely and tired, Radu wants to know what the blue whale said to him. That's awfully hard to explain here on the surface, Orca says, but she does her best. Apparently it was the whale's name, a description, a history of experiences, a set of beliefs. Afterward, she asked Radu's name and understood that he could not answer. She wants to speak again in the future. Orca explains that Radu can learn the underwater languages, at least middle speech, and shouldn't feel bad about how hard it might be. Even divers don't truly know the depths of the whale languages. I don't think anything exists that you can't describe in true speech, she says. I guess I'd have to see transit to prove that, wouldn't I? They return inside while the divers frolic with the whales before voting on whether to make a bigger transition or not. Orca stays with Radu because she doesn't plan to vote. Her family will change in one way, and she'll change in another, because she's been accepted into pilot training. 
Apparently she had an awful fight with her father about it. He's a formidable, stubborn man, refusing to meet Radu even after the lander was spoken to by a blue whale. Radu wants to know if he can stay here and become a diver. A bit surprised, Orca says that they were all landers a few generations ago, but to transition and live amongst blue whales is an idea that scares her. As a vision of the future takes shape for him, Radu hugs her and asks that she be happy for him in his dangerous endeavor, as he is for her. The embrace ends with a kiss. At the spaceport, Linnea steps on board a much bigger ship, which she will pilot alongside a dozen others who will be shown the seventh dimension. One of them brings her a small glass flask. It contains the ashes of her human heart, signifying her true success in permanently becoming a pilot. She laughs with joy, and the pilots embrace her, welcoming her into their company. The next morning, Radu wakes up beside Orca to his first Earth sunrise. He walks outside to experience it. After a lifetime spent on a dark world called Twilight, it absolutely dazzles him. Finally, he opens himself to the perception of the world that was open to him in the seventh dimension. Out in space, in transit, Linnea drives the ship towards that very dimension, and the pilots around her react in all kinds of ways awe at the spectacle, anger at themselves for having missed it, or vague disappointment that they can't see it. How do we get into it? Someone asks. Quote, they were always in it, but Linnea knew what she meant. She found an anomaly and took them from a deep cave to the open air, from the land to the sky, from the ground to the excited state. Unquote. The room is full of new reactions as some pilots flee the room in shame or beg to go home. Much as Orca did at the edge of the universe, Linnea puts on a spacesuit and floats outside. She releases the ashes of her heart into the, this place that is her true home now. Back inside, she performs a miracle and makes the connection with Radu's mind. He is on Earth, watching the sunrise, open to the world's possibilities, and he is not surprised to hear her voice as if she were right there with him. They discuss the fact that the administrators think she'll be able to fool him into coming after her again. They talk about how a couple of other pilots can see the seventh, how Vasily has gone searching for answers through visions. Then again, Radu feels certain that Vasily wouldn't actually change his mind to believe in visions so quickly, and deduces that he's actually headed for Twilight to try and contract the plague. Linnea says she will drop out of seventh and try to stop him. Quote, Linnea sent Radu a caress of love and affection and vanished suddenly from his perception. Radu gasped and nearly slid from the pinnacle to the field several meters below. He recovered himself, brought back to the world of the present. Linnea's touch had been every bit as intense and erotic as any physical contact they'd ever had. It was, in some ways, even more powerful. He felt breathless and aroused, yet peaceful." Unquote. He sees a glimmer in the sky, and soon a little aircraft lands, containing Mark. He came to ask Radu to please go back to help the administrators so that people like him might have a chance to fly again. For Mark's sake, Radu agrees to comply with some demands, though he'll have some demands of his own. Then Mark falls into a deep sleep, just as Orca comes to join them. Radu tells her his plan for the future, that he'll give his time to the administrators in exchange for alleviating Twilight's plague debt. At the same time, he'll begin to learn true speech so he can speak with the whales. Though there are people he will never be able to trust fully, he can feel the resonances of the world, and his all lead back here to his new home. For a while, he'll remain entangled with the pilots and with Orca. Quote, they hugged each other, like crew members saying goodbye, like friends saying hello, unquote. The end. It's time for our favorite game. Did the cover artist read the book? 
I'll be honest that I really doubted that would be the case when I picked up this paperback from my shelf. Uh, Though the three main characters are obvious, I thought their outfits were a bit too silly. (laughs) As it turns out, silly outfits are pretty common among crew members like Orca, hers being especially shiny since she doesn't really care for clothes and treats them like ornamentation. The only difference might be that, aside from the neon color, Orca's circus getup on the cover is actually more subtle than what she's described as wearing in the text, uh, which is like, what, gold and copper and bright colors. Also, her skin is quite pale, while in the book she's very tan, in contrast to her hair. Radu and Linnea are both in black outfits, very similar to what they have on at the beginning of the book, uh, which is part of what makes them seem a little unusual compared to other crew members. Radu pretty much always wears black, and when he meets her after her escape from the hospital, Linnea is wearing a black tank top that shows off her chest scar. She's too small in the background to tell if she has that scar or not, and her legs are bare, but otherwise it's very close. Even her shoulder-length hair looks about right. Just to review, the cover features a platinum blonde woman in an outrageous pink and blue circus outfit staring at you, with two other people behind her. One is a man in black with a gun, the other is a a woman in black, uh, in a black low-cut leotard, also with a gun. The background features waves rolling in under a starry night sky with a spaceship zooping by in the distance. Okay, I admit, I'm not sure what to make of the guns, since I don't think anyone ever carries them in the story. Maybe Robert A. McGuire, the artist, just couldn't help himself but spice it up a bit since he did a lot of crime novel covers. Uh, And I have to admit, I really like the dark blue background with the cloudy galactic sky mixing with cresting waves. It captures the scope of the story's setting, I think. Superluminal is kind of like if M.C. Escher's print Three Worlds was turned into a book and you added a few more layers. If you've never seen it, this black and white print is a bit different from Escher's other works like Belvedere or Relativity, uh, though those are also fantastic. (laughs) I loved his stuff so much as a kid. His mind-bending, impossible buildings and nonsensical spaces are what most people know him for, but Three Worlds is one of my very favorites for the very reason that it is less obvious how it bends your mind. The picture depicts the surface of a lake with leaves floating on the water. Beneath the surface swims a wide-eyed goldfish, very Escher in style, and reflected in the water are several trees with the sky beyond. In this image, you can see the contents of the water, the fish, the physicality of the water itself, leaves buoyed on top, and the things existing alongside the water, the trees. They interact with each other as the trees are bare, having dropped their leaves into the lake, and the wish, <clears throat> and this fish swims in the water below. Very similar worlds are explored in Superluminal, and, like Three Worlds, they can be broken apart into even more layers. At first you have just the ocean, the land, and outer space, but each of those is much more complex, just as the reflections of the trees in Escher's print are framed by the sky, and the fish is framed by dark depths. In today's book, we see how the three main characters shift their understanding not only of their own homes, but of the universe as a whole, falling in love with a reflection or a depth. Note that there are a lot of overlapping discoveries. Radu learns that life on land is not always as simple as it is back home, Linnea finds a realm beyond the one she's set out to see, and Orca, who already knows the ocean contains depths unfathomable, is captivated by the vastness of the universe, the world beyond the galaxies. 
did you leave anything out this time? You might be wondering. <laughs> and the answer is always going to be yes. Without a full <clears throat> without the full context of the book, there are some things that are really hard to talk about fully, whether they're major plot points or small things. For example, during the episode for The Web of the Chosen, I didn't describe every single thing that happens during mating or every time the chose creatures need to poop. At, the <laughs> at that point, I might as well read the whole thing as an audiobook. Until someone is paying me full-time wages to sit in front of a microphone and record myself all day, every day, before editing that recording to make a seamless listening experience, I am not going to do anything more than write a detailed summary for my listeners. That, and I don't want to have copyright problems. For Superluminal, I mostly left out bits and pieces of intimate interactions that I thought wouldn't really add anything. Aside from that, are there any story elements I left out? Well, there are bits and pieces scattered through the text that add dimension to the world the characters live in, mostly political details. Radu comments on economic absurdities. Orca notes the way the spaceport authority is constantly nagging the diver's council, only for the council to remind them of ignored applications, and so on. Unless it directly impacts the characters' movements through the story, I left it out. Any newfound fans out there can get their hands on a copy of Superluminal and pick it apart. Tell me what you find in the comments on YouTube or on Instagram. Another thing I wasn't sure how to talk about was the term Aztec. It doesn't come up very many times, but it's an interesting tidbit. Ordinary people, ones who aren't even space travelers, think of pilots as almost divine beings able to go where no one else can, watching over the sleeping people in their transit comas like gods. They often call pilots Aztecs because the replacement of their hearts with an artificial pump is seen as the ultimate sacrifice. The Aztecs of the ancient Americas partook in human sacrifice and the extraction of human hearts, so pilots are compared to them. However, the pilots despise this nickname because, for them, this is not a sacrifice. It's a liberation. Though they are proud of their status, they also don't like to be turned into mere myths. The term Aztec is doubly offensive considering it has a sort of prejudiced connotation equating an ancient civilization with only the practices considered most barbaric in modern society. Here's the thing about Superluminal. I tried to explain the central concept of pilots to a friend, and they couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> what does replacing a human heart have to, uh, with an artificial one have to do with changing a person's sense of time? Afterward, I had to go back through the text and give it some thought. I didn't mention every instance where Linnea and the pilot's lost sense of time is mentioned in the book, uh, but it's emphasized that it is what makes a pilot capable of surviving transit, even better than a machine does, the implication being that computer AI has an internal clock that gets out of whack. Pilots have to be disconnected from the normal flow of time that links them to the dimensions they were born into, transcending all the way up through the seventh dimension. But again, what does their heart have to do with it? The first successful heart replacement was performed in 1982, the year before Superluminal was published. So I can only guess that McIntyre was intrigued by the idea. The main difference between the artificial hearts we use today, or in the 80s, uh, and what the pilots have in the book is that the pumps of the future regulate the blood flow to the nth degree. Pilots don't even have a pulse because their blood is moving through their body in such an efficient way. Again, what does this have to do with losing their sense of time? Well, I think that part is more metaphorical than scientific. It marks their decision to let go of the planets where they were born and give themselves over to a higher plane of existence. As Linnea discovers, the pilots prefer being in transit and would live in it if they could. Yes, the loss of a certain interpersonal of certain interpersonal connections with non-pilots is sad, 
but the enlightenment they gain is well worth it to them. It is a little like nirvana or heaven, since they get to see what lies beyond while other people age and die, uh, thus being called Aztecs and kind of deified. And not every pilot can handle every dimension. Some people fail, requiring their old hearts to be put back in after the first trip out. Some die upon the threshold to seventh, and some are blind to the upper dimensions, just as Radu is blind to the usual transit routes. Of course, this means that the real mystery of Superluminal is Radu Dracul's ability to survive transit despite his keen sense of time. At first, when he and Linnea begin to harm each other physically by being around each other, it seems like he is more chained to the rotation of the planets than other people, thus making him a poor pilot candidate and even more uncomfortable for pilots to be around than usual. After he wakes up in transit, however, we can speculate on whether this sense of time was actually a symptom of his broader perception of the universe. Whether or not it originated with the plague, he alone survived. It's uh, like a sixth sense for him, in the same way that we can touch our finger to our nose without looking in a mirror. He just knows what time it is, as much as he knows where his ears are. Though he is blind to the wonders of transit, he can still traverse them with his sixth sense, as a blind person can still feel their way through the world, as long as they have others to guide them around tricky turns. And in the seventh dimension, his senses come full circle like a clock face. He can, uh, his, conception, <clears throat> his connection to Linnea, more than anything, is what awakens his ability to exist in transit, though the fact that he's always dreamed during spaceflight suggests the anesthetic may never have sent him off to the same comatose state as everyone else. At the end of the book, we see that Linnea can communicate with him when she's in the seventh dimension, but Radu's mind has been opened to the interconnectedness of the entire universe, so he can do it while simply standing on planet Earth. And this seems to be the reason why Radu attracts the attention of the blue whale when he and Orca join her family in the Strait of Georgia. I'll take a quick second here to mention that I think McIntyre chose blue whales for their huge size and presence, because I think sperm whales are actually the most intelligent cetaceans. Their brain mass is the biggest of any animal ever to exist on Earth, followed by killer whales. Due to the odd name and their less sleek appearance, sperm whales don't appear in fiction as much as their cousins, other than like Moby Dick, I think. Um, But in recent years, they've been getting a lot of attention due to their huge intellect. In some ways, sperm whales would be more appropriate to the superluminal story because they are deep divers and hunters, while blue whales feed on krill at the surface. Anyway, having an enormous solitary creature of the open ocean speak directly to Radu and essentially invite him to explore their realm and knowledge is akin to having some sort of compassionate Lovecraftian deity accept him as a pupil. Just as Orca is drawn to the abyss at the end of the universe, uh, Radu is excited by the depths of Earth's oceans. Again, his place in the book shows how things come full circle, showing the parallels between the mysteries of a single planet and the vastness of the ocean of space. For all the whale enthusiasts listening, you'll be happy to know that the divers in the story are so compassionate about their connection with all types of whales that they've basically been at war with the United States for decades, making sure that hunting cetaceans is fully banned. This is why Orca's father has such a problem with her leaving home and associating with landers, since he feels that none of them are capable of any real intelligence or compassion. On this note, I'll mention that Radu's acceptance by the blue whales uh, perhaps has a slight flavor of a white savior. Uh, this is this trope is when an outsider, generally white, is accepted into the inner folds of a special spiritual society despite being part of the enemy group. 
You can see it in movies like Avatar, Dances with Wolves, uh, The Last Samurai, and so on. While I dislike the trend towards having a white actor in these roles, I do appreciate the story that is being presented. There is a certain hopefulness in seeing someone raised in one world be taken into another, proving that we are all the same deep down, and talent can be found in anyone. At least in Superluminal's case, Radu doesn't save the whales. <laughs> He's simply offered a seat at the table, so to speak. I'm also glad that Linnea doesn't stay a damsel in distress for the whole book, going off on her own as soon as she's rescued from the seventh dimension. In many ways, Orca is more of a savior than Radu. She will become the first diver pilot in history, making, <clears throat> making an even bigger sacrifice than most by giving up her ability to deep dive in the ocean, and will bring a new stage of enlightenment to, uh, to civilization. By becoming a pilot, she will witness transit, seventh, and the abyss, and will be the first person to, able to describe them in any way, because she knows true speech. The deep knowledge of the whales is the key. Humanity strives towards the stars, but people like Orca know that to understand what's out there, you need to know what's already here. No, the whales aren't capable of going into space like humans can, but their minds are already evolved to the point of forming concepts and songs for what's out there more than ours are. People will be so anxious to understand transit and beyond that they'll work backwards to learn more about whales and true speech. So, while Radu's personal experience is circular, Orca's effect on humanity as a whole will be even more so, the culmination of thousands of years. Switching gears, let's look at the planet uh, Nathumalan, uh, which I know I'm not, I have absolutely no idea how to pronounce it, uh, which takes a lot of inspiration from Aboriginal Australia. First of all, the pilot Atna, which is short for Atnaturta, has dark skin like native Australians do. Secondly, the transplanted nature of the modern society that lives on this colony world vaguely mirrors the real-life evolution of Australia due to colonization, including the manipulation of a desert into a livable oasis. And thirdly, there seems to be a reference to Aboriginal mythology surrounding the dreaming or dream time. As Atna says goodbye to Radu, he admits that he had a vision about danger in the future, and says that Radu wouldn't really understand since he's not from Nathimalan. The dreaming is, to the Australian indigenous, the collective history of the world through one's understanding of our relationship with everything around us, based on the transition from dreaming, <clears throat> dreaming to reality that is in itself an act of creation. Atna seems to have a vision because he comes from a culture that is historically in tune with these rhythms. Parts of this feel very similar to the book's other commentary on connectedness and levels of reality. Apparently, the Aboriginal cultures of Australia are the oldest in the world, going back more than 50,000 years. So, Atna may have inherited an ancient way of interpreting the flow of the universe around him. Just as Orca is involved with the extremely ancient whales who will help us understand the mysteries of the universe, Atna is part of a culture that has been uh, on the right track for most of humanity's modern existence. Sleep, dreams, reality, ancient knowledge, the unknown, and rhythms are all ideas explored in Superluminal. They are important motifs within the story. Consciousness itself seems to have layers. There is the death-like coma sleep of faster-than-light travel that is remembered only as a draining, nightmarish nothing, which is necessary for disconnecting humans from the ticking clock of creation so they don't age and die in an instant. There is the real world that everyone experiences with the planets and relativity spinning through space. There are the unknowable dimensions used in transit, mainly fourth, fifth, and sixths. 
There are dreams that swirl in and out of reality in ways that whales and the people of Nathimelin seem to be more acutely aware of. Uh, and there is the seventh dimension, which reminds me of the book A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Uh, that book discusses how reality can be bent like a piece of string, warping it so that you can walk from one point to another by simply placing them next to each other, while never having to cut or damage the string. Superluminal speculates that everything and everyone exists side by side all at once, though most of us will never be able to experience it that way. To finish off, let's talk about the interesting gender roles of Superluminal. The most notable are those of Radu Jakul. He is younger than the women he associates with, as well as being less experienced and more naive due to being in his early 20s and having grown up on a backwater colony like Twilight. He idolizes, then deeply admires, and then loves Linnea after seeing her for the first time in his teenage years. He's essentially a farm boy in the big city. Still, he accepts his place as the least senior person on board any ship, even when his abilities are key to a mission, and cooks for everyone. These are traits that remind me more of Sheeta from Castle in the Sky than a typical leading man in a sci-fi adventure story. All this, while still looking like the mustached icons of the 70s, Burt Reynolds, Tom Selleck, Lionel Richie, Freddie Mercury, etc. The things Linnea likes about him are traits that would traditionally be given to a young female love interest. Youth, admiration, interesting beauty, spunk. Meanwhile, the female characters have a lot, of, a lot more ambition and confidence, getting frustrated with Radu when he tries to protect them from information and physical danger, or when he can't decide whether to trust them more. Linnea Trevelyan is Radu's senior by several years, though I'm not sure if the book says exactly what her age is. She's old enough to look at Radu and consider him a rookie, though not in a disrespectful way. It's meaningful that they are both tall, so they can look each other in the eye. She likes the idea of showing him around Earth, traveling together before her status as a pilot gets in the way, socially and physically. Though we spend the first part of the book with her, we don't actually know that much about Linnea other than the fact that she has always been headstrong and impressive, as well as social, stubborn, and kind. The fact that she uh, has friends like Mark, the extremely well-connected restaurateur, and Cathal Stafford, the wealthy party hostess capable of lying to administrators, means that Linnea has something inherently compelling about her that people are drawn to, just as Radu is. By the time he meets her properly, she has just become a pilot, nearly, uh, nearing the pinnacle of her spaceflight career, living a life of travel, sex, and personal growth. Orca, too, is older than Radu, by a few years, though significantly shorter. <laughs> she knows Linnea a little bit from being on crew together sometimes. They have both been crew members for a long time, but uh, by the time Radu enters their lives, by sheer coincidence. Everything is connected, so who knows? The big difference between them is that Orca has certain loyalties that hold her back from wanting to become a pilot. She doesn't feel as strong a hunger to discover what one sees in transit because she already knows some ocean mysteries and what it feels like to swim with them. While Linnea doesn't really like looking into the abyss at the end of the universe, preferring the higher dimensions, Orca is jolted out of her life's rhythms by the sight of the same abyss. As Linnea sees the answers to life in transit, and Radu sees them in the ocean depths, Orca sees something out there. It's telling that Radu is the only person on board with Orca who will look out into the silent darkness with her, though he wouldn't have thought to leave the ship to get closer, while Orca is the only person he knows who would understand his fascination with the blue whales, though she would be scared were she in his place. 
All three characters' journeys are connected through a series of events that land them in the perfect positions to open humanity's minds to the true possibilities of the universe. And I could go on for a while longer, trying to analyze the characters' appearances in more detail or breaking down what we know about how the society works, but at that point you might as well read the novel to form your own opinion. Until next time, you can check out my Instagram to see what I might cover in the future. Don't forget to subscribe and comment with the books you are never going to read, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye, Earthlings!